speaking to someone who's struggling. Maybe you've been here for a while, but you're struggling. And that you don't have to do it alone. That if you do feel like you're in a dark place, whether you've got two minutes, two years, 20 years sober, what I've learned is that it's not about the quantity of time. It's about the quality of my spiritual life. And so I would say like sometimes we struggle and you don't have to do that alone. This is a we program. I know that for me, my disease thrives in the dark. When I'm not talking about what's going on with me, when I'm not showing up, when I'm not being authentic, not necessarily with everybody, but at least with my sponsor and at least with the people closest to me. One of the kind of like superpower tools that I've learned in this program is to tell on myself because that insanity, it lives in the dark. This disease thrives and lives in the dark. You don't ever have to drink again if you don't want to. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, Episode 85. My name is Michael, and I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have been sober since October 10th of the year 2000. The purpose of this show is to share the good news that recovery from alcohol and drug addiction is possible. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. This podcast only means to support our donations. All funds will be used to pay our monthly operating expenses. This is not a for-profit venture. Please visit SoberShares.com and click on the donate button to help us. I would like you to email me directly your listener feedback so I can read it on the next episode. Please contact me at Mike at SoberShares.com and I'll be super excited to read your email on the next episode. And now it's time to meet our guest. I'm going to turn it over to them and ask them to introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to. My name is Kelsey. I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October 31st of 2016. How many years is that? Seven years. I'm going to read something that I would like some feedback directly from the listeners about. I received an email from Jessica R. And she said this. Hi, Mike. Our group is about to have a group conscious meeting about whether to continue to use our current practice after each meeting of holding hands and saying the Lord's Prayer, a most important and well-known Christian prayer. I've been doing a lot of thinking about this, which in itself seems like a small issue. But to me, I feel is also a consideration of the place of the 12-step program guidelines on religion and spirituality in and outside of the meetings. It has also stirred me to look at my personal and group conscience and what responsibilities I and we may have. I don't need to control what happens with this situation in my group, but I want to pray and reflect within myself in hopes of growing. There are tons of great program literatures about these topics. Also, can you recommend any of your personal favorite podcast on religion and spirituality? Love to put you on the spot. Love, <laughs> Jessica R. Mm. This is an interesting topic. And it is. I'm, it is a very interesting topic. And it's one that I've actually been thinking about independently of this feedback that I received from her. I've been talking to people about this recently. I don't really have a fully formed view or version on it. Now, I've talked to several people in my recovery community of men who have strong and definite opinions about this, that the Lord's Prayer uh, is the way to go after we finish most AA meetings. We, help, we, we circle up and hold hands for, you, for those of you that do not know how the mechanics of an alcoholics meeting operates 
most meetings at most groups in America, at the end of it, we all stand up, we get in a circle, we hold hands, and we say the Lord's Prayer, or we say the Serenity Prayer, which are Christian prayers, which I find interesting. But Alcoholics Anonymous is a worldwide program. It's not just an American program. Now, it was started here, but it wasn't, it's not just here, it's everywhere. So in my mind, I sit sometimes and I think about, well, what do they do in, in places where Christianity is not the dominant religion. In other words, like places where the Hindu religion or uh, they believe heavily in Allah or the big Jewish communities or people that are atheists or people that are agnostic. How does that make them feel when we stand up and we don't force anybody to do anything, but we all stand up and we all hold hands and we say a hardcore Christian prayer. I think it's a, a little weird that we do that. You know, it's tradition. They didn't ask me if I think it's a good idea or a bad idea when I got here. They were doing it. Does it freak me out? Not necessarily, but I do think about atheists and agnostics and people that are Jewish and people that don't want to believe in that prayer and people that believe in Allah and people that believe in Buddha and people that, you know, believe in the Native American Indians. They don't believe in Jesus or God or anything like that. So I wanted to get emails from the listener. Please email me at Mike at sobershares.com especially our international listeners because 80% of our listenership is in the United States of America which means 20% of our listeners are internationals Um, so I would like to hear from people in America and your thoughts and opinions on this as well as international listeners do you guys do that in India what do you guys do in India or other places where where Christianity is not the the dominant religion what how do y'all close your meetings do you stand up and do you say the Lord's Prayer do you have any thoughts or opinions have you ever thought about that Yeah, I have. I think there's a couple different ways that you could unpack that. Uh, And it sounds like she is doing her part or her work on herself in that and prayer and meditation and, and really, um, you know, trying to play her role as part of her group conscience, which I think is important. And then it goes back to, you know, the, the tradition of every, every group being autonomous. Uh, You may go to a meeting where they are dead set on saying the Lord's prayer at the end of every meeting, you may go to meetings that say the serenity prayer instead, or some end with the responsibility pledge. It speaks to this beautiful fact that we have all kinds of meetings everywhere. So like when I work with a new woman, I'm real big on home groups. I think it's important to have a home group that you are committed to, that you regularly attend, that you have a some kind of service commitment at, whether it's making coffee or greeting The beautiful thing about that is that there's so many different varieties. You can find your home. So if you're going to a meeting and you're not vibing with it and you hate that they say the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, try a different meeting that maybe doesn't do that. But the other thing that I thought about as well is in We Agnostics, it talks about don't let spiritual or religious terms deter you and ask yourself honestly what they mean to you. And that's something that I, you know, I had to navigate in sobriety of figuring out what does this God word mean to me? And so I think, yeah, the prayer has Christian roots, but it can mean whatever you want it to mean. And so it might be worth taking a look at some possible, possible prejudices you may have as to why that prayer bothers you. I really appreciate Jesse R. emailing us, and I'm super excited to hear your listener feedback, please hit me at mike at sobershares.com and I will read your feedback on the next episode and we'll dig a little deeper into this topic. But it's definitely been on my mind lately. I'm going to bring it to your attention and see if you have any thoughts about it. 
Okay, so one other thing I want to talk about is there's a local group in uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, actually, it's in Addison, Texas, and it's called Clean Air North. And uh, I love Clean Air North. I go to Clean Air North a lot in Addison, Texas. And they, uh, about three years ago, uh, I heard they were having a group conscience meeting to vote on whether or not to allow people to keep saying, keep coming back, it works if you work it, at the end of the meeting when we're all standing there holding hands. And so they did have a group conscience, and they did vote on that, and it was voted down that you could not say that anymore at that group. Mm. And they stopped it because uh, it obviously upset somebody or bothered somebody, and they got a vote on it, and the vote won. And so now they don't let them say, keep coming back, it works if you work it, a chant at the end of the Lord's Prayer. I don't have any thoughts on that one way or the other, except I thought it was funny. Yeah, it's interesting. Right? Well, it's interesting because you never really know what the group conscience is going to decide. (laughs) You know who's going to show up and vote. A lot of people wrangle up their friends. Yeah. But it also goes back to just your personal, I think, I'm trying to decide how I want to word this. Like, I think it goes back to having some kind of personal, like, faith in your group, Right. Um, that the the methods of Alcoholics Anonymous, the structure, the group conscience, the purpose behind all of that is that God is going to come out, right? And that the group will ultimately be upholding its primary purpose of carrying the message to the still-suffering alcoholic. And so I think, yeah, sometimes they can get a little superficial of like, should we buy a new coffee pot, right? But at the end of the day, um, as in, as an individual in the program, I get to trust that God is going to come through and speak through that group conscience, whether I agree with it or not. I saw that play out big time uh, in the end of the COVID pandemic. Not Mm -hmm. that I'm saying it has ended or it's over. I'm just saying that when we transitioned in year two into year three back to in-person meetings versus just strictly online with Zoom, that there was a lot of drama in the group conscious level about what are we going to do? Are we going to be six feet apart? Are we going to require masks? Are we not yeah. going to require masks? Are we going to cap the number of attendees? You know, are we going to hire somebody to come in and wipe down all the hard surfaces between the meetings and spray? And like it was just so much stuff and so many different opinions swung wildly, but we were able to get through it. And I want to thank all the people that were in service positions during the pandemic of uh, 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023, because it was very hard on a lot of those people. I was one of those people that got to go through being in a leadership position in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we took a lot of slings and arrows. You know, we took a lot of bullets. We took a lot of heat. People were scared. And so I wanted to just give a special shout out to anybody that uh, was sober, got sober, or tried to get sober during the pandemic because it was a very difficult and trying time, unprecedented time for sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous. So thank you if you were in a leadership position taking shots from your fellow members about what we should do and what we shouldn't do and their strong thoughts and opinions. I know people were scared, but I made it through sober and it sounds like you did too, right? Six years? It was, uh, yeah, it was definitely dark, dark days during the pandemic for sure. What ended up happening is I ended up in this, this corner of spiritual sickness during that time and really kind of got to go through this experience where it was either seek God or go back out. And thankfully, it was almost like another step one experience. You know, I'd gotten to this point where life was okay, like externally, I had, you know, a job and relationships and like things were good. 
but I began to rest on my laurels in my my personal program, my relationship with God. And I was really delusional around Mm -hmm. that until, (laughs) you know, you wake up one day and it's like, man, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to go to the liquor store. Um, And that was, thank God, it was terrifying to have those thoughts of just being so miserable. And I was so separated from everyone of not being able to go to in-person meetings. And, you know, at that point I was attending my home group once a week on Zoom, very much checked out, you know, like very checked out. And I really wasn't doing 10, 11 or 12 at that point. I was just, like I said, resting on my laurels. I was coasting and thinking I was okay. And then, you know, it all just kind of came to that came to a head where I was like, man, I'm, I'm miserable and, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. And so I got to call my sponsor and get honest about some things that I'd been holding on to, some resentments that I'd been harboring. Um, I got to redouble my efforts and get back into it and rebuild that relationship with God um, that I'd kind of put on the back burner. It was actually really cool because after or right before that, probably like two or three weeks before all of this kind of came to a head, I had a woman reach out to me, just random phone call. And it's, isn't it cool how I just answer my phone from random numbers today? Cause I never used to do that. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, but I got this random phone call from this, this woman that had gotten my number from a coworker who knew my husband, who's also in the program. And so she called me and she said, Hey, you know, so-and-so gave me your number and I think I have a drinking problem. And I said, okay, be at my house on Wednesday. And she came to my house on Wednesday and I 12th stepped her on my couch during the pandemic. And, um, and then it was like, when I started working with her, my eyes were open because I was like, oh my God, like, I don't know. I felt really inadequate sponsoring this girl. Um, and so it was kind of cool how like God used her to help me get to my truth in that situation. And we started working together and then, uh, she was like, you know, I really need to go to in-person meetings. And I said, girl, I feel you. I do too. And so one of my friends was having a meeting in his backyard. Okay. (laughs) It was like 2022 or 2023. When was this? This was... Was it the end of 2020? This was 2020. Wow, hardcore. Yeah, this was when everything was shut down. (laughs) They had, uh, I think technically we weren't supposed to have more than like 15 or 20 people in his backyard. Mm -hmm. But, you know, during that time, really what I realized is I'm not sure if COVID is going to kill me, but I know my alcoholism will, right? So I have to treat this. I have to. So that's kind of where that went. And it was this, you know, beautiful experience that got me plugged back into the program, back into um, the steps and having a relationship with God again. And I really haven't been the same since, you know, I think that was a really pivotal moment for me. That's exciting. Yeah. That's really exciting. That's a good time to to just really build a strong foundation for you to carry on the rest of your sobriety on. Cause you can always look back on that as a cornerstone of growth for you, like pain and growth. And mm-hmm. that's really cool. That, that guy provided that opportunity in his backyard for in-person meetings. That was a very strange time. Yeah, it was. So I wanted to turn our listeners attention after they finish this episode. I highly recommend the next episode you check out of sober shares is episode 21 with a guest named Leslie Kay. 
and she's told us about getting sober during the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. She explains that she believes she may have already been an alcoholic long before alcohol ever touched her lips. She's always been a seeker, and that seeking is the reason she find alcohol and fell in love with it. Alcohol was fun and magical for many years until it turned on her and almost destroyed her life. Leslie lived a double life for a very long time, and food was her first addiction. A few years later, alcohol and drugs took on a larger role in her life. Leslie survived a physical assault by an acquaintance that scared her and only increased her alcohol and drug use. Leslie realized she may have a problem with alcohol when she entered law school. As her drinking escalated, she was confronted by her younger brother who suggested Alcoholics Anonymous. As the pandemic raged and the world began to shut down, so did she. Her use of alcohol, food, and drugs went off the charts. She reached out for help and found it via her family and her higher power. Please listen to her story of healing and redemption and how being a sober mom is one of the biggest rewards she has been blessed with since getting sober. That was one of the most fun episodes I've ever recorded. She's highly intelligent, and the main thing that I think that was really super interesting to me about her is her getting sober during the pandemic at the very beginning of it, and it was raging, and she was by herself in her apartment. She got sober via Zoom meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous by herself. Just mentioning that because we're talking about COVID and it was a really fun episode to record. So let's get back to full disclosure and honesty with the listening audience. You and I don't know each other. Mm-mm. You you came highly recommended to me by two previous female guests. Your phone number has been in my phone for a year and a half. I knew the name and I was in a meeting the other day with you. Can I say the name of the meeting? Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. The other day I was in a um, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Dallas called the Chicago Group. To be honest with you, I was going there to find somebody to be on this podcast. I was going to look for a female guest to be on this podcast. I was going fishing. (laughs) I really was. That was my main goal of going to that meeting. And so I get there, and you jump up, and you were being of service, and you were at the podium, and you were doing your service commitment and talking and sharing information ideas, and you said your full name. And as soon as you said your full name, I looked. I go, wait a minute. I go, that is that girl whose number I have on my phone and two other girls that have been previous guests on my this podcast told me to call her. So I picked up my phone. I looked at it. I was like, that's her. I was like, I was like God, that has to be her. And then it was. And I was a little nervous, but I came up to you after the meeting and talked to you. And you agreed to be on the show. So that's how you got here today. But you, we don't know each other. I don't no. know you. I know of you, but I don't know you. So these series of questions I'm going to ask you will be very exciting because I don't know the answers to any of them. <laughs> so can you start off by telling us about the early years of your life? What did your family look like and where you were born? I was born in Jackson, Tennessee. I grew up in a small little podunk town (laughs) called Brownsville, Tennessee. Uh, It's in West Tennessee, about an hour northeast of Memphis. Uh, If you're driving down I-40, you blink, you'll miss it. I lived there until, I don't know, until I went to university in Clarksville. So I guess I was probably like 20. So you fully consider yourself a Tennessee girl? You feel in your blood? (laughs) You know... I like to think that I'm an honorary Texan now. Okay. I, I hope so. I feel <laughs> are they similar? Are Texas and Tennessee similar? There's, it's more so like if you go out to East Texas, there's a lot of similarities with Tennessee. Were they called Tennesseans? Yeah. Let's yeah. go. I just made that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you like country music? Um, not so much, Mike. You know, I'm kind of a rebel. Growing up, I was very much uh, like you know, alternative emo kid, had my hair dyed black and I wore jeans and band t-shirts. And so I wasn't really into the whole 
country music. I wasn't really a country girl. I went through a phase. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> went through a phase because I dated a farmer. So, you know, okay. tried to play the part. Let's go. Um, <laughs> but now I think, you know, music is, it's such a universal language. So I'm, I'm open. You know, I think if it's, if it's well-written, if it's well-played, you know, then if it's a good song, it's a good song. I've been through right. phases in and out of my life where music has been a really big part of it, has been really powerful and impactful in my life, and then other phases of my life where it just drifts away and it falls away, and I, it, it means very little to nothing to me. I have a really good memory, so I can really remember all my exposure to music and mm -hmm. the artists and who they sang and what album it's on and, you know, what the band's history is. I have a lot of memory of that stuff. But I went through a phase when uh, I got sober where I just started listening to sports talk radio for a long time, and I really got into that side of the um, media consumption deal. I just really listened to Sports Talk Radio yeah. for a long time. Uh, but I do have love and respect for country music. Uh, there's some things that I like about it. Probably my favorite thing about country music is you can clearly and fully understand most of the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, there's very little mumbling. Yeah. There's very little... Um, uh, you can under, you can hear them. You yeah. can understand them. They enunciate. They, they, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, I was really into country music for a while. I was into rap music for a while. Yeah. I thought I was, <laughs> well, I'm going to what I thought I was, but <laughs> I thought I was a rap person for a long time, and I did enjoy that. I listened to a lot of Beastie Boys and all these other things, but that was a long, <laughs> long time ago. Do you listen to music now, or what are you I listening do. to? Yeah, music is, um, I can't get in my car without immediately plugging my phone in okay. and, and starting music. And I will say in sobriety, I did start listening to more podcasts because I think those are just incredible. And they're just such an awesome tool to connect with people and hear stories. What are some of the ones you're listening to? Podcasts? Yeah. Currently, right now, yours, actually, <laughs> since, you, since you asked me to be on. You're I was like, like, I better crank Well, because I had listened to a few of the, the older episodes and... Mm -hmm. um, of people that, that I knew. And I'm like, Oh, cool. They were on a podcast. So let me check it out. But yeah, right. I'm going back and listening. I'm also, uh, my friend at work got me into this one. I've only listened to one episode, but I kind of love it. It's called a podcast greater than yourself. I've heard of it. I haven't listened to it yet. It's well, it's like, it's not, uh, it's not anything like what you do here. Right. Okay. Um, but it's basically the the episode I listened to, and I don't know if they do different kinds of episodes, but the one I listened to yesterday was just these two guys talking back and forth about like AA stuff. Okay. You know what I mean? So it was almost like a... Were they releasing current episodes or is yeah, it... Are they yeah, really? Mm -hmm, yeah. Wow. So, um, and it's just, it's great, you know, and they're, they're funny, they make jokes. It's just great. So... I'll check it out. Yeah. <laughs> I listened to, uh, there's another one that's produced here in North Texas. A guy named John M. does Sober Speak. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've heard of that one. That's mm -hmm. a good one. I like him. He's up into 300 and something episodes by yeah. now. It's crazy. He's been doing it for a while. Um, there's another one that I listened to recently. It's called AA Recovery Interviews with Howard L. Okay. And um, from listening to it lately, I, I, it sounds like he's from Houston, Texas, and he produces the show out of Houston, Texas. Which shocks me because I thought that he was in Los Angeles. Yeah. I thought he was based out of Los Angeles. I feel like um, there's probably a lot of good opportunities to interview people in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. I feel like I <laughs> wish I was there sometimes. <laughs> I was like, if I had my microphones and my recorder in Los Angeles, I could probably hit some big time home runs out there. Oh, yeah. Or some characters yeah. out there, especially at the Pacific Group. Shout out to the Pacific Group in Los Angeles, California. I have not physically been to your place, but I would really like to go there one day. It's one of the most famous groups in the world. Mm -hmm. 
and I'd really like to, to go to the Pacific group. So if you're a member of that group, we love you, we care about you, and I would like to come out and visit you, maybe bring my microphones with me and record some of the members out there. Um, it's famous like that one in New York City called the Mustard Seed. Have you heard of the Mustard Seed? You know, it sounds familiar. Yeah, there's a, there's a really famous group in New York City on the island of Manhattan. It's called the Mustard Seed. So shout out to everybody there. I actually have been to that one. And one of the people that I'm interviewing next, one of my next two interviews is going to be a member of the Mustard Seed group from New York who currently moved to Dallas. And so nice. that's how I met her. So she's really cool. Okay, so let's talk about your thoughts on spirituality as a young person. Were you exposed to religion or spirituality as a child? So I guess this kind of goes back to you know, continuation of my childhood. So, you know, I was born and raised in this tiny little town. Um, both of my parents at that time were teachers. It's a very small school district. So my dad was the high school band director. He also taught American history. My mom was the third and fourth grade music teacher. So, uh, yeah, I like music. <laughs> it's kind of ingrained in our family. All three, I have three older brothers, um, all of us were involved in music somehow, but the drawback to your parents being teachers is that everybody knows who you are. Also combining that with having three older brothers who had already gone through the school system, everybody knew who I was. Right. And so I was always like, you know, Oh, you're Bill's daughter or you're Chris's little sister. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that began my identity issues. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. not feeling like I'm really my own person. And so growing up, you know, it was really, usually when I tell my story, I describe it as your typical dysfunctional family. There was a lot of slamming doors and screaming, and I'm pretty sure we all, myself and all three of my brothers punched holes in the walls. Um, I think we were, now looking back on it, I think we just didn't really know how to like emotionally regulate. (laughs) Thank God for the tools of the program today, right? You know, spirituality and God, I think we went to church, we went to a Methodist church a handful of times when I was really little. I don't know, I know my dad grew up Baptist, and um, I'm not even sure what my mom grew up as, but I think she was the one who was like, oh, we're going to go to this Methodist church. But with my dad being a band director, there was a lot of competitions and things on the weekends, and so going to church got pushed, pushed back, and it just wasn't a priority. Um, we didn't talk about God a whole lot in our house. We didn't pray together or anything like that. I will say my, my grandmother was, she was always the one that whenever we stayed with her, she would, you know, tuck us in at night and she'd be like, okay, okay, say your prayers, say your prayers. And so I did grow up with this idea of God. Um, I, you know, I knew what certain religious practices and things were, um, Did but, you believe it? Were you believing any of the, the rhetoric or the stories or the literature? You know, I think it was kind of like Santa Claus to me. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. uh, you know, when I got older I, and started to kind of intellectualize a lot of it, um, especially taking, you know, college courses in religious ethics, I loved, <laughs> me too. I loved to debate uh, religion with people. I loved Which it. Which side like, did you like to take? Just that, you know, that everybody's either got it wrong or we've all got it right in a different version, right? Okay, I've never heard it put like that. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it when I got, I went to a private school, I uh, went to a private college up in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, Bradford College, and when I started to be able to, you know, select electives as I got higher up in the uh, the movement, you know, jan- junior year, I, I, I started to, like, started to take all these religion classes. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like kind of a non-believer, you know, at the time. And um, my favorite classes were the philosophies of Eastern religion and spirituality and God and man. And I really enjoyed the discussions in those classes. It was book yeah. learning too, but the teachers in those classes were way more interested in what the student body thought and what our ideas were. And I really, really, really enjoyed those classes. Yeah, no, I mean, it was my, that like religious ethics and abnormal psychology mm-hmm. were my favorite classes. Yeah. Had nothing to do with my major. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My super interesting, right? Classes. Yeah. 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 But I mean, you know, religion, it was, I really just viewed it as something for people that were weak, right? Like they need something to lean on because they, <laughs> they don't have the willpower to pick themselves up uh, by their bootstraps and like get through their lives. Right. But on a, you know, and that's a very generalized, like it's a hardcore way of looking at the world. Well, and it it's was, exactly how I looked at it. It was very intolerant. Was exa- <laughs> you know, it was exactly how I looked at it. I had those thoughts, feelings and emotions, but I kept into myself and I silently judged you. Yeah. If I met a new person in my social circle, I would be like, you know, if if he or she were very religious, I'd be like, okay, that's a sign of weakness. Yeah. Still a cool dude. Still a really pretty girl. Whatever, whatever. I'm just saying that they believe in some fantasy shit. Mm, yeah. And they have a magic sky daddy friend. Yeah. And that the ain't... flying spaghetti monster. That ain't real. <laughs> that ain't real, sis. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take away from the fact that you're still super pretty, but... I also feel like you're maybe a little dumb or a little gullible. And that's how I rolled through life until alcohol and drug addiction drove me into a position where I painted myself into a corner and I drank myself and drugged myself into a position where I was no longer able to choose whether I drank or did drugs anymore. And I had to say this crazy little prayer that I never saw, thought that I would say, which was God help me to a God that I didn't believe in and that I belittled and looked down upon. I didn't get there through any like, personality enrichment or had a great set of morals. I got there through like humiliation. I got through the degradation. I got (laughs) through pain. And uh, it's just amazing how far some of us have to travel. It sounds like you and I traveled some of the same highways and the same lanes when it comes to, to that. So how freaky was it for you? Let's jump ahead a little bit and then we'll jump back. But since, since we set the stage for that, is that that's kind of how you were thinking during your college years, how much did it freak you out when you finally got to a 12-step program uh, and they started talking about God? Well, so the interesting thing is, like, despite my closed-mindedness on religion, I, I could never tell anyone that there's not something, right? I could never be a full-blown atheist. In fact, I dated a guy who was an atheist and he and I had challenge challenging conversations around it all the time because I'm like like how can you say there's nothing right there's obviously something um I just didn't know what that something looked like and I think more so I as things progressively got worse in my alcoholism uh I I became a victim right a victim uh, I had a lot of prejudices and so I was never able to say, no, there's no God. But what I did, like the delusion or the the fixed belief that I lived in was that, yeah, there's a God and that God wants absolutely nothing to do with me, right? Because if that God cared about me, I would not be 
dying every single day from this, you know, I didn't know it at that point, but I wouldn't be suffering homelessness. I wouldn't be in abusive relationships. I wouldn't be, you know, panhandling to try to find a place to sleep that night. Um, that happened to you? Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Listen. I'm sorry to happen to you, but it sounds like this might be a good episode. Listen, I was. Uh, you got there, huh? Yeah. It. You know, I'm. I'm a low bottom girl, uh, <laughs> which you know, if for the listeners, you don't have to go down that far down the scale. You did. Yeah, I did. I did, and <laughs> so I made did it I. out. So, so did I. you know, we made it out, and hopefully, that is a yeah a beautiful testimony to somebody who is in that place. Um, yeah. But, you know, as far as God, as far as like seeing God, like, you know, my first experience with Alcoholics Anonymous was in 2014. Um, I was really, I went to a meeting uh, with a guy that I was with that was with at that time. And it was really only because we were staying with his parents and they said they knew that we had all kinds of issues. And they were like, if you want to stay with us, you need to go to this meeting. Uh-huh. So we're like, okay, whatever. So go to the meeting. Um, not sober at all, <laughs> at all. And, you know, and I saw the word God on in the steps and just immediately dismissed it, immediately dismissed it. Like, yeah, whatever. But there was no part of me that wanted to be sober. There was no part of me that wanted anything to do with the 12 steps. And I, again, I kind of thought that it was just a crutch, you know, <laughs> like 100%. these people need that because they're not strong enough. Right. And so, as my what story, if, what, I love that comment. But what if you were one hundred percent right about that? Like, let's look at that. Let's unpack that a little bit. You said that they needed that because they weren't strong enough. When in reality, if you look at it, that's what it is. I need that because I'm not strong enough. Exactly. So that actually is one hundred percent true statement that you just made. Even though we were making it, and I made the same mm-hmm. observation and, and comment, but we were both one hundred percent correct when we said that. But, you know, I'm here to freely admit and profess today that, uh, yeah, guess what? I did need God because I wasn't strong enough. And that's what the first step is about for me is powerlessness is I couldn't do it by myself. Right. And I just, that that was a true statement. I want to ask you a question. I want to jump back for a second. You said you had some interesting conversations with a guy that you were with for a little bit. And you all had some interesting conversations about religion, religion, no religion, God, spirituality, no spirituality. But you asked him, you said directly, you asked him, how can you say there is nothing? Because mm-hmm. you're okay. So you said that to him. How can you say there is nothing? Can you, do you remember, can you share in a general way without saying his name or busting his identity <laughs> yeah. out? Do you, or can you pair it back to us? Some of the things, what he say to you? What, what does an atheist or an agnostic say to you when you ask him, how can you say there is nothing? Do you remember what he said? What he volleyed back to you? Do you remember? I don't remember. Typically, his responses were pretty dismissive um, or pretty much like, you like know. Like towards you or towards the topic? Both. <laughs> but you, have to, you have to remember, too, these conversations were very, uh, very much fueled by alcohol and other things as okay. well. So okay. Um, okay. they were kind of just all over the place. I was just curious if, like, he had some big prepared statement. Because a lot of people that, that are, you know, in that position and they're going to try to verbally battle somebody or at least defend themselves in their position they might have a, 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 ver- yeah. a verbal. I, I think a lot of his responses just had mostly, mostly to do with like free will. You know what I mean? Okay. So like if, if there was a God, then we wouldn't have free will. We wouldn't need it or something like that along those lines. But <sighs> I'm sure interesting discussions take place like that all across the world and not just within the confines and context of alcohol addiction and drug addiction. I think that discussions like that happens in seminaries mm-hmm. against with, between two learned men of God. 
Yeah. I'm sure they talk about that all the time. I'm sure that's entire semester topics. Well, and I think too, like it's, I don't know about you, but that's something that I struggled with and that I have a lot of women ask me about is how do you decipher your will from God's will? <laughs> right? What do you tell them? It's sometimes it's so hard. Oh I God, think I usually it's, I don't know what God's will is for me, but it's typically pretty clear to me when I'm running in my own will. Right. When I'm forcing things, when I'm obsessing over things, um, when I'm really trying to get what I want and I'm not consulting with God and I'm not consulting with my sponsor and I'm not living by spiritual principles in this mission to get what I want. It's typically pretty clear <laughs> mm-hmm. that, oh, that's, that's me. That's I'm, I'm not in God's will in that. But there've also been experiences where I am certain that this is what God wants for me. Right. <laughs> and then it doesn't happen. And it's kind of like hindsight is twenty twenty, And I'm like, oh, maybe that's not what God wants for me. I thought that happened to me one time with the Cadillac Escalade. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought for sure. I thought for sure. When I had like five or six years sober, I started thinking about it. I was like, yo, I think he really wants me to get the premier edition Escalade. And then I found out later that that's not what he wanted for me. And I ended up in a minivan. I got myself a sweet little <laughs> minivan. And I was like, oh, okay. But I, I have talked to sponsees and I've heard people make statements in meetings that talk about when we're having a discussion on God's will, what is God's will, what's not God's will. And a lot of people that I respect and I think are pretty smart say things like this. They're like, I might not know what God's will is for me today. Some days I just don't know, but I sure know what it's not. Mm-hmm. And here's some of the things that it's not. Lying, cheating, stealing, being slothful, right. being envious, um, gluttonous. These are some of the things that I need to steer clear of because those are certainly not God's will because they're not good for me and they're not good for other people. Yeah. So I kind of just stay in that mode until... I sleep and then I wake up the next day and maybe I'll have a clearer vision of what God's will is for me. We kind of have to learn patience. I feel like, you know, and restraint of pen, tongue and mouse. And for me, I have to be very observational. If I'm in a running through a period of sobriety where I'm not sure what God's will is for me, what I do is I try to stay in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I try to stay in the middle of recovery. I try to keep my eyes and ears and my emotions and my thoughts wide open. And I observe other people and what they're doing. And if I see it working for other people and I would see it working in their life and I see the light and the magic in their eyes, I'm drawn to that. Yeah. And I start to ask them questions like, hey, man, what are you doing? Oh, man, I just discovered yoga six months ago. Yeah. Really? Or, yeah, man, I figured out that I can't uh, eat Cheez-Its and Dr. Pepper and Coke and cheeseburgers every single day. I changed my diet. And then I'm like, oh, well, that's maybe that's what God's will for me is. Maybe I need to learn more in year 15 of sobriety about nutrition mm-hmm. and what I put in my body because I'm getting older and I can't burn off stuff like I used to. So maybe my God's will is for me now is to like learn what a carb is yeah. and learn about sodium and learn about protein and learn about fiber and lean into nutrition and try to educate myself. I think maybe that's what God's will is because I don't really know about that stuff right now. I just know that I for sure like cheeseburgers yeah. and I for sure like French fries and I for sure like Dr. Peppers. Yeah. And I just, try to figure out what God's will is even little by slow. And I've been sober 23 years and I'm still trying to figure out what what God's will is. And what I've come up with lately and what I've been praying for out loud lately with my wife and kids, because we pray together every day, we hold hands and pray together uh, is to put not only myself and my wife and my child in a position to be of help and service to other people. And that's for somebody like me 
that's selfish and self-centered to the extreme and has been that way since 1970 when I was born, that is a long way for somebody like me to come to even care about character development or refinement. I guess that's just a testament to, to recovery and, and, and trying to do God's will. And then also falling short when I fall short, don't beat myself up like so hard because I'm human. And they start, thank God they talk about progress, not perfection. Cause that like allows me some grace and be like, okay, well, yeah, you messed up. You messed up today, dude. But then I come back with the 10 step and I make amends. So there's just so many cool spiritual tools in our program that, that we can use to get closer to, to whatever God's will is for us. The other thing that I've learned through experience too, is that even like one for sure, I am not going to do it perfectly. Uh, for anybody out there who is trying <laughs> to do it perfectly, <laughs> I beg you, just learn from my experience. I don't know. Maybe you need to have your own experience, but you can't get an A plus in AA. You <laughs> cannot like pass or graduate this program. You know, um, I tried for a period of time to be Little Miss Perfect AA and to do everything perfectly and to, you know, whatever. Um, and I had a really hard time allowing myself to make mistakes. Really, really hard time. And so when I did make a mistake, because I'm human, it's inevitable, I'm going to make mistakes, right? When I did, I would just go into this, like, shame spiral. And ultimately, all that did was block me off from God. And I had a woman that I just absolutely admire in the program point out to me, you know, shame is just another form of arrogance, And I thought, oh, wow. She was like, yeah, it's just your ego. And I didn't see it like that because I viewed shame as this thing that I can't really control. Um, I can't really do anything about it. And she's like, no, it's your ego. Like it's, you're, you're not right sized with God when you're acting out in arrogance, just like you're not right sized with God when you're in shame. Right. And that was huge. It was like mind blowing. It was like, oh my God. Cause I'm a very shame driven person, very uh, fear based and very shame driven. And so it was just, it just this major click for me when I, when I connected shame to ego Um, and then ego to selfishness and self-centeredness. Right. Um, Because my sponsor is like, when you're shaming yourself, who are you thinking about? Well, me, you know, Selfish and self-centered. <laughs> I've never heard it put like that. That girl was smart to tell you that. Yeah, yeah. It was, I've never heard that before. Yeah. So it's something that really, really helped me. But, you know, I, I got to grow from that and start allowing myself to make mistakes. And what I learned is that I am a lot more useful to the women in my life, the women coming into my life, maybe even some of the guys. I'm a lot more useful if I allow myself to make mistakes and remain vulnerable and open about them. Right. Because if I'm making those mistakes, it is guaranteed that somebody else is. And it goes back to like my dark past is my greatest asset. My dark past doesn't necessarily end when I get sober. You know, sometimes we go through dark moments in sobriety and I can use that to help somebody else. And so that's what makes it worth it for me. That's beautiful. I want to talk to you about something that we can either edit out or we can leave in. Okay. Uh, it's going to have to do with your pregnancy. Okay. So we'll talk about that. And if, yeah. you, if you don't want to talk about that, we'll edit it out. How pregnant are you now? Seven months. Yeah, 28 God. weeks. I 28 don't know weeks, how many months seven, that is. 28 yeah, 28 weeks. weeks. <laughs> so pretty far along. Seven. Yeah, well, I'm due in April. So congratulations. Thank you. First child. Yes. Congratulations. Wow. Amazing. 
And as far as uh, length of sobriety, we're talking around six years? Seven. Seven yeah. years? Okay, good. I just good. got seven in last October, yeah. Okay, good, 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 good. The, re- the reason I want to talk to you about this is because when I'm sponsoring a male, I've never, well, anyways, I'll just leave it like this. When, I, when I'm sponsoring people, I sponsor males, guys, when, they're, when they hit five years of sobriety, we really start to talk about balance and boundaries in mm. life, work-life balance, yeah. recovery home life balance. We talk about um, emotional balance. We talk about financial responsibility and balance because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or break anybody's bubble or anything like that. But I feel like my personal opinion is if you have less than five years of sobriety, you're in early recovery. I'll just say that. I, I might be wrong. I might be right. But from my experience, I feel like anything less than five years is early recovery. But once you get that five-year point, you're pretty well vested. And you, you've got the wheels turning. You've been through five Christmases sober, five <laughs> New Year's Eve sober, five Valentine's Day sober. So you've got a track record, and you should have some pretty solid recovery in your life by that point. Things yeah. should, should hopefully be coming back to you. Your health should be coming back to you. Your relationships should be coming back to you. If you're, if you're w- willing and able to work, you should have some type of career back in your life by then, or volunteer work or whatever it is. Like I said, when I'm sponsoring these guys and we get to years five and six, we start talking about balance and boundaries because I feel like a lot of people, myself included at times, can start to either really throw ourselves into recovery, heavy, heavy, heavy at five years, or start to drift away at five years because yeah. life gets good again and life gets busy again and life gets exciting and we might get married, we might get pregnant, we might have all these new things uh, the joys and successes of dealing with life on life's terms successfully start to come back. So can you talk to us a little bit about where you are with, with balance and boundaries between your home life and your work life and your home life and your responsibility within the program? But there's also going to be another caveat or another twist point on there because you're, you're pregnant. <laughs> so it's like you're going through a really interesting, cool yeah. life change. Where are you now, and how do you plan on handling balance and boundaries through your pregnancy and, and early motherhood? Wow. What a question. Um, <laughs> what I've learned in my recovery, what I've learned from, from the book and the, you know, the people, mainly the women that have come before me, is that my top priority is my relationship with God. The steps are the way that I get to that and tools that I use to continue to grow that relationship. So that is top priority in my life. And I have experience of what it looks like when I'm not making that a priority in my life. And so typically, I mean, everything else just kind of falls into place when I'm prioritizing my relationship with God. um, Then I get to show up as a seemingly decent, if not good employee. Uh, when I'm prioritizing my relationship with God, I show up as what I hope is is a good wife to my husband, you know, a good daughter to my dad and my stepmom and just a good sister and just a good person in general, right? If I'm prioritizing that relationship with God, that's really what it all boils down to for me. You know, I can, I have experience of trying to compartmentalize right? The different areas of my life and in early sobriety, that's something I did very much. And I felt this kind of imposter syndrome of like the book, there's a line where it talks about, he tries to enjoy a certain reputation he knows in his heart he doesn't deserve. Right. And so it was interesting because I felt like I was showing up in AA really, really well. 
right? Like I was going to the meetings and I was talking to the people and I was, I was giving off this impression like, oh, like she works a program. But then I would go to work and this was back when I worked in the service industry and, uh, you know, I worked at Starbucks and I was, you know, slinging coffee through a drive through window for eight hours a day. And it's very high stress. It's very fast paced and uh, working with a lot of people who do not or do not need to practice spiritual, spiritual principles. You know what I mean? So um, but I was going to work and I was showing up like really pretty terrible. You know, I was yelling at people. I was getting really resentful, like calling every day. I get off work and call my sponsor and be like, oh, my God, they're slamming the ice bin today. And she's like. It's not about you. (laughs) She's like, you need to look at why that's bothering you, you know, but it was very compartmentalized. I don't really know exactly what happened, but I kind of just got to this point where I was having a conversation with a friend in the program and she was like, you know, it sounds like you need to practice uh, tradition one at work. I was like, what are you talking about? Because I had like no knowledge of the traditions at this point. I was, I was a late to the party on the traditions, which I love them today. But she was like, yeah, tradition one, the, the common welfare comes first. And it was, she was like, you need to practice that at work and think about the common welfare of your team. I was like, man, why, you know, why are you going to hit me with that truth? Right. Um, Cause I was a little like comfortable in the resentment. Like it felt good. I was like, yeah, I felt justified in it. Um, but Anyway, so I, I, you know, took that back to my sponsor and started praying about that. How can I contribute to the common welfare at work? And it's something that I still do today in my current job because it really helped me shift that perspective of it's not about, yes, I'm an employee and I'm there and I'm getting a paycheck, but it's not about what I'm getting out of this because my job, right, my ultimate goal is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people around me. It doesn't say I just do that in AA right? It doesn't say that I just do that for my sponsees. I do that in every area of my life. Um, so that was even at home too, right? Even at home, right? (laughs) Even at home, because that was another thing that I could compartmentalize of like, Oh, okay. Like, yeah, I'm going to go to this meeting and then I'm going to come home and get resentful at my husband because there's, you know, dishes in the sink and, you know, the floor is dirty and whatever, whatever. (laughs) That was a whole growing experience. Yeah. I had to, uh, I agree with everything you just said. I, I, I'm still learning how to talk to my wife. I'm, I've been sober 23 years and I've been married like 16 or 17 years and I'm still in the process even as recently as, as last night of thinking like, how do I be a better husband? Yeah. How do I use my words better? How do I approach this situation in a, in a more kind fashion? Uh, some of the things that I've learned in recovery that I've been able to take into my marriage were things that were not part of my repertoire or arsenal of emotional, uh, ways of thinking or doing things. And and one of the things I learned in the program that I hijacked and took straight to my house is when I told her for the first time and have told her many times since then, you might be right. You might be right. Yeah. I didn't ever have that. Humility is a superpower, (laughs) especially in relationships. I never had that. (laughs) And it turns out that there's a lot of times that she was right. Mm-hmm. And about some big things, yeah. not just like, are we going to go to like Olive Garden tonight? Or are we going to Chili's? I mean, bigger stuff than that, like really big things that had to do with our marriage and the direction of our finances and the direction of our family. And are we going to have kids now? Are we going to have kids later? Are we going to do this tonight? Are we going to do that tonight? You know, yeah. whatever. I just really have had to learn how to, and I'm continuing to have to learn how to 
be a better husband and how to speak to her sometimes. He just, it, it, the simple little things as far as the cadence of my voice and the volume of my voice and the tone of my voice and the timing of the conversations. Am I doing it at 11 o'clock when she's exhausted, 8 p.m.? Or am I coming at her at 1 p.m. in the middle of the day when she's awake? Yeah. And she's had plenty of coffee already and yeah. she's, you know, not sleepy and she's not tired and she's not hungry because she just had lunch. I just learned so many things about how to uh, drag things from, from recovery and in my program and apply them in my, my personal life. I want oh, yeah. to uh, I want to finish painting out the picture of your alcohol and drug addiction. We really haven't fully, oh, yeah. we haven't really fully qualified <laughs> we got you. Sidetracked. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I believe that you're an alcoholic and a drug addict, but you haven't told us about it too much okay. yet. So let's let's cascade into you know. Why don't you tell us about the beginning of your alcohol and drug use? Paint a picture of what that looked like. Uh, I assuming it wasn't all bad. I'm sure you had some good times at some point in your high school or college years, and then it crashed on you. And then what happened? So can you tell us about that? Yeah. Okay. So um, to kind of preface my first drink a little bit. So I grew up, uh, I wouldn't say I did not grow up in an alcoholic home, but I grew up in, in a home where there was heavy drinking. My dad was a heavy drinker. Looking back on it now, I do not blame him, <laughs> right? Like he was dealing with high school kids all day at work and then me and all three of my brothers and my mom and her issues and just all kinds of stuff. So, you know, after school he was drinking and then on the weekends he was kind of a binge drinker. But what I can tell you about my dad's drinking is that he was a happy drunk. Uh, some of my best memories, and I'm my dad is my absolute hero, um, I absolutely just, I completely adore that man. Um, and he has just always been there for me. So shout out to dad, who's never going to listen to this, but he might. <laughs> tell, him, um, tell him you love him just in case. I love you, dad. What's his name? First his name's name. Bill. Bill. She loves you. <laughs> he could listen to um, it. I, I don't maybe, but, um, <laughs> but so he was a happy drunk and some of my best memories, some of my best memories were, you know, when I was little probably like eight or nine uh, I would have trouble sleeping and so I would go downstairs to the kitchen and he would make me a glass of chocolate milk and it was obvious he'd been drinking right his eyes were bloodshot his words were slurring like I knew what drunk looked like from a very early age um, but he would make me a glass of chocolate milk and we would just sit there and talk and we would talk about all kinds of random things and we would laugh until I would get tired and then he would tuck me back into bed um I don't remember any violence really surrounding alcohol in my house. It was, we just all had anger issues, you know what I mean? Um, so I remember wanting that, you know, as a, as a young girl, I felt, I was really tightly wound. Um, I had a lot of anxiety. I'm sure, like, if people looked at me, I was just vibrating with anxiety constantly. Um, a lot of comparison. And this was, you know, long before I took a drink. I just always remember feeling like I'm not good enough. You know, I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. And I didn't believe my, you know, grandma. She would always tell me, like, Kelsey, you're so pretty and you're so smart. And you can do anything you want. And I'd be like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm a loser. I'm a failure. Um so just that, you know, those voices in my head constantly telling me I'm not enough. And I know to kind of tie this back. So when I was 13 years old, I was dating a 16-year-old boy, which is, 
you know, relationships are a common theme in my story because I also use those to change the way I feel. And uh, so I was dating a 16-year-old boy that I was not supposed to be dating. You know, I'm a rebel, so I do it anyway. And we're going to this party out, out in a field, somebody's house, like somebody's cousin's boyfriend, sister's house, I don't know. Uh, we're going to this house, and I knew there was going to be drinking, and I was so excited. I was so excited because I saw how happy and calm and just worry-free my dad was when he drank, and I wanted that. But for some reason, I never like snuck his booze because <laughs> I always was like scared I was going to get in trouble if he knew it was missing. So I never snuck his alcohol at that point. <laughs> and then, so I go to this party um, and they're making this giant bowl of PGA punch. So pure grain alcohol punch. And this chick is cutting up chunks of fruit like pineapple, apples, bananas. And she's putting it in this bowl, in this punch bowl. And my, uh, you know, genius idea was like, because I was already going into it of like, I need to pace myself. So from jump, I had this idea or this instinct that I need to control and manage this, right? Um, because I had seen my brother like insanely drunk and I'd seen friends and things like that. People that were just way too sloppy. And I was like, I don't, you know, I'm, I, I got to drink like a lady, right? Yeah. So my genius idea was I'm only going to eat the fruit. Okay. If I just eat the fruit out of this punch, then I'll be fine, right? Because it's got a little alcohol in it. I didn't know that fruit typically absorbs alcohol and gets you drunk quicker. <laughs> so by the end of the night, long story short, by the end of the night, um, I'm walking around this stranger's house and I'm finishing off drinks. Everybody's passed out. Like I'm stepping over bodies on the floor. Mm-hmm. I had the guy that I was with, I had, he had thrown up and I had changed his clothes twice. And I remember getting so frustrated with him because like, how are you, you know, two feet taller than me, probably 50 pounds heavier than me. And you can't even hold your alcohol like me. Like what a wuss, <laughs> right? So already I'm wearing this as a badge of honor. Um, And so I just, you know, I'm walking around and I'm finishing off these drinks and I saw nothing wrong with it. And so eventually I pass out, wake up a few hours later, my mom's blowing my phone up, my brother's blowing my phone up. um, And I'm like, oh man, I should probably get home because I, you know, snuck out to go to the party. (laughs) So I go home and, you know, I was in trouble, but it wasn't, it wasn't severe. Like I didn't care. All I knew in my mind is I cannot wait to do that again. Cannot wait to do that again. And so I couldn't, obviously I couldn't drink the way I wanted to drink at 13 years old, right? Um, But benefits of growing up in a small little town in West Tennessee is that a lot of people throw field parties. Yeah. And they don't check IDs at field parties. (laughs) So I became friends with uh, a lot of my older brother's friends. I uh, dated or not dated, but I did date older guys, but I just started hanging out with the older crowd. And anytime there was a party, I was there. And I made sure that somebody had alcohol for me, right? So I would call ahead or I'd text somebody and be like, hey, pick me up a bottle of Jack Daniels because I'm a whiskey girl. Um, and it, like I said, it wasn't very often. It was a lot of, you know, devious, rebellious behavior, sneaking out. I would tell my mom, hey, I'm going to stay with my friend. 
And then I'd get to my friend's house and I'd be like, if my mom calls, you cover for me because I'm going to this, you know, party or I'm going to go hang out with so-and-so or, you know, we'd also grab a bottle and ride the back roads, <laughs> you know, just all that country stuff. Um, and it really, like at that point in my life, it was just, it was fun. It was fun. It was an escape when I drank. I'll tell you what alcohol did for me is it felt like I could take a full breath for the first time in my life. And I didn't even realize I was holding my breath. But that's what it felt like. And I, I knew nothing about the physical allergy. I knew nothing about the mental obsession. I didn't even know that there was something wrong with my drinking early on. You know, and people would tell me like, no, Kelsey, like you get way too out of control. You need to pace yourself. You need to control it tonight. Or they would assign a babysitter. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd often end up, you know, on the verge of, passing out propped up against a truck tire in a field somewhere and I would just kind of come to and be like well guess I need to go home and I thought there was nothing wrong with that little girl drinking (laughs) Jack Daniels you said yeah god I used to party with a lot of people we were young I mean I can't imagine a little tiny girl drinking Jack Daniels I would wreck you (laughs) that would just put you in bad positions I feel like babysitters are having to be assigned and yeah the whole deal I had a lot of fun too when I was young yeah so what happened next you got on to college or what happened next yeah so I went to a, I went to a community college. Um, well, I'll say my, my parents filed for divorce when I was 15 years old, and it wasn't finalized until I was about 19. Oh, no. So it was really long, drawn out, messy. I was right in the middle of it. Um, but when I was 17, I my dad was fighting for custody of me. And so he had gotten a, a townhouse And I moved into the townhouse with him. But at this point, he had become an over-the-road truck driver. Mm -hmm. And so he came off the road and was just doing local runs for a few months. And then at some point, he went back to doing over-the-road runs. And so he was gone for, you know, three, four weeks at a time. And bless his heart, uh, you know, he knew I drank. He knew that I drank. And his only kind of rule was... Don't, don't drink and drive. Like if you're going to drink, just do it at home. Right. And so I took that to mean like, sweet, when you're gone, our house is the party house. And so I would have my friends come over and bring bottles. Um, and so that kind of was when it turned into like an every single weekend thing at 17. Um, and then I went to community college for two years in Jackson. So I was commuting from my hometown to there and immediately found my people, immediately found people that drank like me. Um, and, you know, I, again, it was just a weekend thing. I thought this is just, it is what it is, right? Like I'm in college, of course, I'm going to party. 100%. So then it was time for me to go to university. And um, my dad was, he pretty much gave me three options. He's like, you can go you know, one of three places, there was colleges in all three of these towns, but they were also the three towns that my older brothers lived in. Okay. (laughs) So he wanted me to be (laughs) close to family. And I don't know if that's because he wanted them to keep an eye on me or if he just felt it was important for me to be close to family because he wasn't there all the time. I'm not sure. So I made the obvious decision to move in with my oldest brother because he's cool and he drinks. (laughs) Right. My middle brother was kind of a I don't know. He's just normal. You know what I mean? And then uh, the youngest, like he literally did not have his first drink until he turned 21. 
Okay. Like I used to think he was pretty straight edge, but he's cool now. Yeah. Um, so I moved in with my oldest brother and kind of the, the deal there was that um, his wife had just had my niece and she was pregnant with my twin nephews. Wow. So the idea was that I was going to move <laughs> in with them. I was going to be a full-time nanny yeah. and also go to school full-time and also work full-time. It's impossible. Well, I think there was just, I think dad just wanted me to be busy, you know, that's, that's three, that's three people. (laughs) Yeah. So I enrolled in school, um, immediately, I immediately found the people that drank like me. Yeah. Uh, like, like during orientation (laughs) the first day, (laughs) I found the guys that, you know, the kids that partied, um, I'm pretty sure it was like that night or the next night I was in somebody's apartment drinking that I'd never met before. Right. Um, and so it just turned into this series of, you know, telling my brother, yeah, I'll be home to help with the kids tonight and then not showing up or, yeah. you know, telling him, yeah, I can watch the kids so you guys can go out. And then last minute being like, oh, actually, I'm going to go hang out with my friend. Mm-hmm. And so it created a lot of tension between me and my brother and definitely me and his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually it, it, the solution was that I would move into a different house that he rented out. So I moved into that house and that's kind of when things started to really go downhill. It turned into a daily thing at that point, daily drinking. That was also when I got introduced to the idea that if I pop some painkillers while I'm drinking, mm-hmm. I can drink more, I can drink longer and I don't wake up hungover. Okay. So that's when some of the other stuff got introduced as well. Uh-huh. Um, and like I said, it turned into a daily thing. Like if there wasn't a bottle of vodka and a bottle of Jack in the freezer, it was a bad day, okay. <laughs> you know? Um, and people would come and go. Um, the house just kind of, it was, it's right next to an army base in Clarksville, Tennessee. So I made friends with a lot of soldiers and single soldiers don't like to hang out in the barracks. They like to hang out off base. And so that was my house, yeah. <laughs> right? Wow. So it was just this constant like coming and going of people. And I would go to school and I'd come home and just, you know, kind of this craziness that ensued from that. And the whole time I'm thinking this is normal, right? This is my life. Like I thought I had arrived. Yeah. You know, because my house is the coolest. Like, all these soldiers think I'm so cool. (laughs) All this crazy stuff, man. Um, So, at that point was when I met my, I don't know, I I say my ex. He's obviously my ex now, but um, he's the one who got me to Dallas. So, we met the day his wife left him ironically or maybe appropriately enough. I don't know. Uh, he showed up at my house for a St. Patrick's day party. He drank like I drank. He partied like I partied. Um, at that time I didn't know that he had experience with drugs as well, but he was the one who introduced me into, uh, to hard drugs. Um, and so we met and then things fell through with the guy that I was dating I say things fell through. I kind of just was like, okay, I'm done with you and I'm going to go with him. My brother found out about all of the things that were going on in the house that he owned. Uh And so he uh, invited me to leave. (laughs) Yeah. So I immediately moved in with this guy that I just met two weeks ago and we were together for five years and it was toxic and uh, alcohol and drug fueled. And uh, we experienced, 
you know, just a lot of crazy stuff, which I can go into if you, if you want me to, but, um, but at some point I kind of to wrap up my drinking, not wrap it up, but wrap up pre Dallas drinking. Yeah. <laughs> I graduated college. And what I'll tell you about that is I have no recollection of my college graduation. Um, I was in a complete blackout that weekend. I, the only proof I have, I lost my diploma at some point along the lines of homelessness. And so I don't even have that. I've got like digital transcripts, (laughs) but aside from that, the only proof I have is a picture of me, my dad and my grandma and I'm in a cap and gown. So that weekend, immediately following my graduation, we packed up the cars and I came to Dallas because this was a guy who had become my higher power and I didn't know it. Right. And I would have followed him to the ends of the earth. Apparently that's Dallas, Texas. (laughs) So here we are in Dallas. Um, What about if you contacted your graduation institution, your college you graduated from and tell them that you want to get a copy of your diploma yeah they'd probably send it they i just would. never have yeah, you <laughs> yeah they you would totally should. you earned that thing <laughs> yeah, i know right it's probably five it's probably it's probably a phone call yeah it's probably five dollars yeah and probably. you have to wait like two weeks mm-hmm. the college is still open yeah yeah, yeah just ask yeah. for the bursar's office and they'll 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 send you the, the i mean it's fun to have it on the wall yeah i'm like it's you know what's funny about that is like it was so it was so important to me to get that diploma, and then yeah. I never used it. It's because you lost it. <laughs> lost. I hope that you do call them, and I hope you get them to send you a copy. Yeah. Because you know what? Your kid's going to see it on the wall. Yeah, that's, and, a, that's a good point. And yeah. that's fun. I bring my kid to my office, and he looks at it, and he's Aww. like, he's a little boy. He yeah. looks at it, he's like, Bradford College. He's like, Boston, Massachusetts. What was that like? <laughs> he goes, what is that? I go, that's a college degree. So anyways, yeah, I hope you do it. Yeah. So uh, you earned it, but whatever. That's just my first thought that you lost <laughs> your shit and you never got to get it back. I'd, I'd call and be like, I've got transcripts. That's I enough, know, right? No, you can't hang transcripts on the wall. You could, that'd be weird though. <laughs> You have like ten pages shit stapled to the wall. Yeah, they'll be like, "What's that?" You're like, "This my this my proof, dog." Yeah. That's my <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you got to Dallas. What you, would you say you followed that guy to Dallas? I came down with him. So he was a uh, he was in the army. He was active duty when we met, yeah. and uh, I was with him through uh, a deployment to Afghanistan. He was gone for six months. It was terrible. Um, I. I I'm not built to be alone. Or at that point I thought like, I'm not meant to be alone. And so, um, I asked him to not reenlist and he didn't. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think I like to think that maybe part of him didn't want to (laughs) reenlist, but I don't know. Maybe it is my fault that he didn't. And so when he didn't reenlist, he was like, okay, well, I'm not going to reenlist, but we're going to move to Dallas because he was from here Okay, and his, well, you know, he said he wanted to be close to family and I always wanted to get out of Tennessee. I had no intentions of staying. Uh, my dream was to really to live in a big city in some high rise, like loft apartment and work some corporate girly nine to five job and like be a boss babe. And, you know, Let's go. none of that happened, but, uh, uh you know, time. <laughs> young. but it's all good. So yeah, that weekend we moved down here. We moved in with his parents. It was supposed to be a very short-term uh, situation. And eight months later, they kicked us out because we, you know, at that point, um, it just got real bad real quick. You know, we were drinking. We were using drugs in their house. 
um, coming and going at all hours. Neither of us was working and it was a lot of lies and like lies and dishonesty and manipulation and um do you ever get violent with you because marine guys are they're aggressive did he ever get i'm not marines i don't know what he was in. he was army yeah did they ever get violent with you or not physically or not really mm, no it was more verbal yeah verbal. yeah emotional yeah yeah kind of stuff um good i but, just know a lot of girls go through that you know to just to be full transparency i was all of those things right back to him though yeah yeah yeah, yeah so i i don't ever like to <laughs> i don't it's not like i don't want to be disrespectful to women who have gone through those kinds of things but for a really long time I was in that I I claimed that victimhood right of being in these emotionally abusive relationships and there were some relationships that I was in that were that got physical um, but it was never anything that I didn't start right Um, I've heard a lot of girls say that and but on the flip side of that there were some some things that I experienced outside of relationships that weren't my fault you know what i mean so like some i've heard some girls that have been through physical abuse and stuff and they take some ownership for it they're like they're like yo i was drunk and i got in his face and i yelled at him and i pushed him and i put my fingernails into his chest Mm -hmm. and i screamed in his face you want to hit me don't you yeah you want to hit me don't you yeah why don't you hit me I've heard girls say that. I'm not, that's not something I saw on a TV show. Yeah. I, that's real from what they told me. So they did take some of the ownership uh, mm-hmm. of that. Not because every situation is different. I'm not trying to say that's a general blanket statement, but I have talked to some females and, and you know what? Every time a girl tells me that, guess what was on the scene? Alcohol. It was an alcohol infused mm-hmm. transaction. Yeah. Tempers were running high. People were wasted. People were saying yeah. inappropriate things to each other. And it escalated, but I have met some females that have definitely taken some responsibility for that. Yeah, well, I'm absolutely. glad that it never got crazy like that with you. So, what happened next? Let's go. Um, okay, so we got kicked out of uh, his house and proceeded to live in uh, his car. At that point, I had lost my car. <laughs> how old were you? I was. Mm, how old was I? Twenty one. Oh, I'm going to say. Young, yeah. How old was he? Uh, he was 26, 27. So. 26, 27. Guys, 21-year-old girlfriend, y'all are living in the yeah. car. Yeah, we were living in the car. We were, um, you know, at this point, it was really just uh, kind of the nomadic, alcoholic, drug addict life, you know, living in the car and jumping from place to place. Um, Did you think things were going terribly wrong or were you delusional still? That things I was so delusional. Still, right? I was so delusional, <laughs> you know, and I, <laughs> I really would just, I don't know. I would tell myself, you know, this is great. I'm not tied down to anything. I'm living like a gypsy. I get to do what I want and go where I want. Nobody can tell me what to do. All the while, every decision that I am making from the moment I wake up to the moment I pass out or black out is what do I need to do to get the next thing that's going to change the way I feel? That is what my life revolved around. And I'll tell you the you know, just the, the truth about it is that I turned into a person that was going to do absolutely anything to get something to change the way I feel, whether it meant, uh, you know, stealing, lying, manipulating, those things were, of course, like, um, but if you, I mean, I was the kind of person, if you left your purse around me, I'm, I'm taking that. Anything that's not nailed down, I'm taking it. Um, anything that I can sell, I'm selling it, right? Um, and so it, 
that was just my life. And I, again, it was absolute delusion of me thinking this is okay. And I think there was a huge part of me, I know, maybe not a huge part, there was a, a small part of me that inherently knew that this is not normal. This is not okay. This is this is not the life that you're supposed to be living. Uh, but it was my reality. You know, the book talks about how our alcoholic life becomes the only normal one. And that's what it was for me. Um, eventually, the car broke down. <laughs> so, your, your house. <laughs> yeah, eventually we lose the house on wheels. The car breaks down. And so then it's jumping from, you know, one hotel room to the next um, trying to find somebody who will let us sleep on the floor for a few hours. What kind of drugs were y'all doing? Heroin and meth. Really? Mm-hmm. How did you do? Were you smoking those or shooting those or what? Uh, I I was an IV user. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, so and you're living a wild ass life. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely insane. Yeah. It was absolutely insane, and it just seemed like I just kept justifying God. it and rationalizing because there was a point in time, like when he and I first met, and I don't. I just want to like disclaimer here is like I do not blame him at all yeah right like he was to, just on the scene today <laughs> I know that he is you know he's just as sick as I was maybe I was sicker I don't know and um you know for a long time I was really angry with him I was really angry with him and I blamed him for a lot of things and so part of you know as I was working the steps and then even after working the steps I got to I got to do a lot of prayer and a lot of self-reflection on that relationship and really come to terms with he's a sick person and I don't look at him with any kind of judgment or resentment today. All I want for him is to get better, right? Because I don't know if he has or not. Um, And I just, I hope he knows that there's a different life for him if he wants it. Um, But originally when he and I first met, you know, it was, it was a lot of drinking. And then we came to Dallas for like a week just to visit. And, you know, he was like, Oh, Hey, we should try this heroin. And I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> like, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, you know, cause we, I grew up in the era of the dare program and just say no. Right. <laughs> How did you do the heroin? Was it old school? Like you see in a movie with the spoon and the lighter and the cotton and this yeah. and the tying off yep. and just like on the TV shows. Just, I mean, yeah, they're pretty candid about it. Um, yeah. especially more recent shows. Yeah. Um, That's you know, nice. and I didn't start off that way. Like I started yeah. off just like snorting it. Did you ever get you infections know? on your body from the needles and stuff? Oh Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. It was, it was bad. Wow. Um, but you know, and, and that was just something that along with my drinking, it, it progressed. I found with, <clears throat> with the harder drugs, I was able to get to that point of oblivion faster. Right. Um, cause that was something that I struggled with when I got into the program is like, am I an alcoholic or am I a drug addict? And I think for me, there's really not a difference uh, because I, you know, it's, that's just saying like, oh, am I an alcoholic? Am I a drug addict? Am I, you know, do I have an eating disorder? Am I a sex and love addict? Like I will use any of these things, a shopaholic. I will use any of these things to change the way I feel and separate myself from God. That was something I struggled with. And it was something that. Do I go to AA? Do I go to NA? Well, that's a whole nother story. Well, yeah, that's, what, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's a question most people that are, I don't know if you want to call it dual addicted, we'll just use that term, dual addicted alcohol yeah. and drugs, that a lot of new people in sobriety, including myself when I came in, because I was a full-blown alcoholic and a full-blown drug addict, and when I came in, I was like, 
well, do I go to AA or do I go to NA? And yeah. what's the difference? And is there a difference? And I, for myself, I found that, you know, I, 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 I qualify for both programs, mm-hmm. but I prefer Alcoholics Anonymous yeah. for me. Because it, for me, it's, I don't know why, I like it more. It's the, maybe it's more established, it has a better track record, the, the meetings are more like set, you know, because a lot of NA meetings I would go to, nobody would show up and yeah. there would be three or four people there that had been sober a week and there was no recovery and they were talking about credit card debt <laughs> and like different food that they liked and I was like, this is not, I was like, what are we doing? And then I'd go over to the AA meetings and they would have all the chairs set out nicely mm-hmm. and they, the hot, everything was, the bathrooms were clean and there were people there. So I just gravitated towards, towards Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. So you guys came back to Dallas for a week. You said we should try this heroin. You said, I don't think so. You did. And then what happened? Uh, I did. And then we went back home and I experienced withdrawals for the first time. Oh, wow. Um, physical withdrawals. And I was like, really? I thought I had the flu. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought I had the flu. I was like, what is this craziness going on? And then, uh, you know, and then we just, like, it wasn't a thing. Like, that. it was just kind of like, oh, okay, I, you know, tried this stuff on vacation and it's whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when we moved to Dallas, <laughs> it became a pretty regular thing like from jump but what I was going to say earlier is I, I will say that I'm very grateful for my experience with drugs because I think for me anyway it got me to my step one quicker um you know I know a lot of people and and I respect and admire everybody's story I think you know your experience is your experience and it's beautiful and it's helpful to whoever it needs to be helpful to right but for me, you know, I maybe I could have kept drinking for 10 or 20 years. I don't know if maybe. I had just drank. But I know with the drugs, you know, because I don't know. I don't know if I would have become homeless from just drinking. I don't know if I would have gone to the extent um, of the shameful things that I did mm-hmm. behind alcohol. But I do know that alcohol was present throughout that. Yeah. Right. Um, like I remember towards the end we were, I don't even know, maybe it wasn't towards the end, you know, the timeline's fuzzy. Um, but at some point, <clears throat> at some point we were going to go, like we had nowhere to go. And so we were going to go put up a tent at uh, Lake Ray Hubbard because we didn't have anywhere to stay. And we stopped at this gas station and I had like, I don't know, like six bucks or something. And he was like, oh, do you want me to get you a drink? And I, you know, I was like, yeah, get me, you know, some four locos. And I thought it would be enough to get like three or four. And he came out with one. And I'm like, that's not enough. Like, what are you, why would you bring me one four loco? Like, mm-hmm. what are you doing, dude? And I was so mad about it. I was so mad. Um, but anyway, my alcohol, like, like alcohol was present through that. And so when I finally got here, um, and I was kind of struggling with that because in the beginning I would, I introduced myself at meetings and I would say, I'm Kelsey, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I just, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so I think through like going through the process, working with my sponsor, um, her helping me to qualify myself as an alcoholic is when I realized that it doesn't matter what substance it is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even have to be a substance. Like it's whatever I'm using to change the way I feel in place of a relationship with God. Right. Um, 
But like I said, I'm grateful that it did get that bad because ultimately I don't know if I would have ended up in treatment behind alcohol, you know? So this kind of gets into the, the, what happened, right? (laughs) Um, but I ended up getting some felony charges because when I drank and did drugs, I committed crimes Mm -hmm. and, um, I got, you know, three felony charges and ended up staying in Lusteret. I was there for five months and then I went to treatment for six months. So I was gone for almost a year. And that was the kind of reintroduction. I don't, I don't want to say reintroduction, but that was the really first coherent introduction of Alcoholics Anonymous into my life. Um, at that first treatment center, they would have women come out on Thursday nights and carry the message to us. And they had women come from AA and DAA. What's DAA? DAA is Drug Addicts Anonymous. And so it's another 12-step fellowship, but they use the AA book. Never heard of it. Yeah, there's also CA, which is Cocaine Anonymous. And they use our book as well. So there's a lot of fellowships that that also use the big book. Um, And then, you know, NA is obviously a different text. But so I was at this treatment center... And what I'll tell you is, even at that point, like I had no real desire to be sober long term. I knew that my life was burning to the ground. (laughs) Uh, But I I really was still in the business of blaming people, places, and things for all of it. You're still super young then, huh? Yeah, I was 20 almost 23, I think, or maybe I turned 23. There's a lot of girls that age that are caught up in this system. Yeah. Were you talking to that guy? So I was 22 when I went to treatment and then I turned 23, uh, right before I got out. Were you still talking to boyfriend X about, Oh yeah. Do you really? Oh yeah. Well, so he and I got arrested together. Okay. Um, (laughs) we got arrested together. Uh, we, you know, it's, it's really kind of a crazy story, but, um, so he was in jail somewhere else no actually so it was me and him and um the drug dealer that we were staying with and the drug dealer's girlfriend and so the police um you know kind of did a a kick door on the room if you will arrested all four of us but he didn't go to jail that day for some reason we're not sure why i don't know why um the three of us did Okay. And um, we, I don't know, we went to jail. I got the felony charges, um, and he, he did get one of the felony charges, and he ended up on, like, I don't know, deferred call-in probation or something, and I ended up with court-ordered treatment and <laughs> intense probation and an intense court program that I had to go through. Um, so, but yeah, we did continue talking. We wrote letters to each other while we were, while I was in treatment, he ended up going to, uh, I think he did go to jail for like two or three days and then got out and he ended up going to like some faith-based treatment kind of transitional place in Denton for a while. Um, and so when, when I got out of treatment, we reconnected and, you know, and it was going to, we were going to be a happy little sober couple and we were going to, cause we would talk about it. Like tomorrow we're going to get sober tomorrow. We're going to like stop. Like 
tomorrow we're going to go get a job, even if it's flipping burgers at McDonald's, like and we're going to be okay. Movie. Yeah. It's like a Netflix movie. I can just see it playing <laughs> out in my mind, man. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It is. I, uh, can just, oh, I can just see it. I can just picture the communication between you and him and the plans and where you're coming from and where y'all going to be going to. But then how did it really work out? Uh, well, so when I got out of that treatment center, um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to be sober. What I, what my plan was, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to do this stupid probation. I'm going to do this stupid court program. Um, I was on probation for five years and I was like, okay, like in five years, like I'm going to be able to drink the way I want to drink and I'm just going to stay away from all the hard stuff. Right. It's a good plan. I'm going to get a big girl job and make my own money and like be independent and, you know, back to the like independent boss babe dream. Right. Right. Um, but so when I got out, I went to this sober living house. Um, it was really kind of terrible. It was in Oak Cliff. And, um, it was me and one other woman that lived there. It was really suspect thinking back on it. I think it was kind of a scam. Um, but he, you know, came and picked me up and I went and like hung out with him one day and then we talked and, uh, and then he just kind of disappeared. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. And I heard, um, from another guy that was at that place with him of like, oh yeah, he, you know, failed his drug test. And so he got kicked out and I didn't hear from him. So I was like, okay, cool. So that was around the point where, um, I'll talk about kind of my last run. Um, so at this point I had been sober, dry, no solution, no 12 steps. I had a sponsor in name only okay. <laughs> um, because, you know, my probation officer said you have to get a sponsor and you have to go to meetings. And she probably said, like, it would be a good idea to work the steps, but meh, <laughs> we're not doing that, right? Because uh, you, <laughs> really yeah. to the God thing. Like, at that point, I'm like, yeah, I know it's a God thing and that's not going to work for me, okay. right? Um, so... I had about 13 months, 13, 14 months dry, white knuckling, absolutely miserable, absolutely miserable. My mental obsession was kicking my ass every single day. Like it's all I thought about. And I was just, man, I was just miserable. It was so bad. Um, and so I ended up, start. I started to hang out with this group of guys that was also on probation that was also in the court program that I was in. So we're not supposed to fraternize, but... Is that where you met him? Is that the check-ins and stuff? Uh, no, we met outside the courthouse. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's classic. Because so, they, did, they did separate us. Like, we didn't go to court with the guys. We didn't... You know what I mean? But I think uh, we, he was, like, outside the courthouse waiting on the bus or something, and we got to talk and whatever. Yeah. Um, so I started hanging out with you know, this group of guys and we were all like on relapse row, you know what I mean? Like none of us were really working with sponsors. We were all just kind of doing what we wanted. And, um, he, you know, one day handed me a bottle of GHB uh -huh. and, uh, and I took it and I took a giant gulp and I didn't think twice about it because in that moment, all I knew was that I desperately needed something to change the way I felt. Right. You know, this was, 13, 14 months of forced white knuckle and partially incarcerated sobriety. I was character defects all over the place. If you breathed in my general direction, I was going to punch you. 
Like I was terrible to be around (laughs) and it was just all just, you know, resulting from or all coming from how miserable I was. And so he handed me that bottle. I didn't ask what was in it. I didn't ask what it's going to do to me. I didn't ask where he got it. I didn't ask any questions. I just took a giant gulp. And then I was like, is this going to show up on a drug test? (laughs) And he's like, no, you're good. Because that was before they had a drug test for that. Mm -hmm. And so um, I thought, yeah, okay, cool. Like, I'm going to get away with this. This is is what I'm going to do. And so it was about three weeks of hanging out with him and this group of guys and, you know, doing this stuff. And I was working. I was the only one out of all of us working. I was waiting tables. And so I provided the money to get more and to get cigarettes. (laughs) Um. And then one day I, you know, kind of just, I don't know if you want to call it like a realization or a moment of clarity or I don't know, maybe gift of desperation, but I, (laughs) I really just came to the conclusion that I didn't want to live anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. I was so tired. Um, I was just absolutely beaten I didn't see any value. I love how the book uses the word futile because it means, you know, without purpose, without direction, it's meaningless, right? And that's how I felt. That was my life. Um, I wasn't contributing to anything. And I felt really just, you know, this mix of being exhausted and just worn out and hopeless. And so I had this plan that I was going to kill myself. You know, I had it all planned out. Um, I was going to get some opiates. I was going to get enough to go into the long sleep and never come back from it. Um, but before I could do that, I had to go to court. <laughs> so I had court scheduled for October 31st, 2016. And at this point, I had been forging my meeting sheet. So I was, you know, I was working pretty much constantly. And so I would just, you know, sign my own name on my meeting sheet. And for any of my court card kids out there, I do not recommend it. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. Uh, (laughs) Or do it and get in trouble. Maybe that needs to be your experience. But uh, so I was signing my meeting sheet and my PO found out about it. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll just get like half honest, right? Because nobody knew I'd relapsed yet except for my roommate, who I found out later. She was like, yeah, I knew the whole time. I was like, oh. And she did tell me at one point, she was like, listen, if you don't tell on yourself, I'm going to tell on you because I don't want you to die. Um, And I thought she was talking about, like, you know, the meetings and dishonesty and stuff. But anyway, so I told my PO, I was like, yeah, I've been forging my meeting sheet because I really need to work because I need to make money so I can pay my probation fees, right? Because let me spin it and make it look good. (laughs) And she was like, listen, just come in, do your days, and then we'll go from there. And I thought, really, I was just going to go to jail for like three or four days and get a little sanction. And um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go to jail for these three or four days, I'm going to get out and then I'm going to follow through with my plan because nothing matters, right? Um, It doesn't matter if I do it today or if I do it at the end of the week. Either way, like I was determined to kill myself. Um, So I go to to court that day and, you know, the judge calls me up and she says, Kelsey, I don't know what's going on with you, but it's clear that you need help. 
And then she said, you're going back to treatment. And it was this weird kind of almost like an out of body experience when the realization of that hit me that I was not about to be gone for six days, but six months, right? If not longer. Um, and so they, I mean, and it was like immediately like, do not pass go, do not collect $200, like grab your stuff and put me in cuffs right there. So they did not allow me to leave the courthouse that day. Um, and what I know today is that it absolutely saved my life. Because had I been allowed to walk out of that courthouse that day, I might not be here right now. So I, you know, and in, in that, when I'm sitting there in handcuffs again, and I have this, that's when I really had this kind of moment of clarity. Where I was like, wow, like I was going to kill myself. And I kind of had this, you know, you mentioned earlier about how you, you said this prayer of God help me right? Mine was more cynical (laughs) because, you know, like I said, I I couldn't tell you that there wasn't something, but I also wasn't fully bought into this whole like spirit of the universe and a loving and all powerful, you know, thing, whatever the, the woo woo, frou frou God that people talked about. Like I just wasn't bought into that. And so I was sitting there And my prayer, instead of God help me, it was just fine. We'll do it your way. And that was my surrender. That was good enough. Yeah. I've never heard anybody say it like that. (laughs) Fine, we'll do it your way. Because I was obviously, I was like, I'm still here for a reason. You know, and that wasn't the first um, kind of time that I had contemplated suicide. There had been times before where, um, you know, I had thought about it. There had been a couple... I don't know, half, half measured attempts (laughs) early on in my life. Um, and so it was always, I just kind of was like, well, I'm still here. So guess we'll do it your way. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And so you left the courtroom that day and you went into treatment for six months. I went to jail. Um, so I went to court ordered treatment number two. Yeah. So, uh, it was three months before a bed opened up. Yeah. And this facility was a lockdown facility. So the first facility, uh, you kind of got some freedom. You got to wear your own clothes. It was more like uh, class driven. Mm -hmm. So there was like anger management and like all the typical like cognitive behavioral therapy classes. This treatment was um, very much like lockdown. Like you wear a, you know, a green jumper, you get a job assignment and there was classes but it was more of like a behavior modification unit. So uh, we had a class called confrontations where we had to sit like with both feet on the floor and our hands on our legs, like back straight. And we would confront each other on, uh, you know, questionable behavior. And so it was trying to teach us to take and receive, receive and give accountability to each other. Um, and there was anger management at that treatment center. There was no AA. There was no AA. There was celebrate recovery, but I was not doing that. Um, and so I had my, my grandmother send me a big book. Uh, Because I'd come to the realization that really the one thing I hadn't tried was this thing that a bunch of people was were telling me worked, right? Um, I knew it was a God thing. I knew it was a God thing. So I also asked her to send me some books about God, 
right? Um, not the Bible. <laughs> like I can't like that. I can't read that. And you said you asked your grandmother to do this. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Cause she was yeah. the one when you were a little girl that was telling you to let's say our prayers and yeah. you're so pretty and you're so smart. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, so I started reading the big book and I started reading, um, I read this book by a guy named Donald Miller and it said that the title of the book is, I think, Searching for God Knows What. Um, and it really helped me be open-minded about the whole God thing. Because he was, it, really the gist of it is that he talks about how there's no formula for God. You know, there's no formula for connecting to God. Um, it's not a cookie-cutter thing. It's not the same for everyone. And he really helped me kind of be open-minded around different terminologies and and things like that, which is interesting because he is a Christian, you know, but um, highly recommend that, you know, along with obviously the big book and we agnostics. But at that point, that was something that was really pivotal for me. It really helped open my eyes. And uh, I started reading the big book and I really just kind of did my time. I mean, I acted out a lot at that treatment center. I was still pretty much sober without a solution. I won't say like, it's interesting when people are like, yeah, I had, you know, I said my surrender prayer and I've been relieved of the mental obsession ever since. That is not my experience. That is not my experience. I suffered from the mental obsession for months and months, um, even into doing the steps. Um, but I had hope, you know, I had hope. And so I got out of that treatment center and I did everything that the women who would carry the message to that first treatment center, they would tell us to do stuff. They, like, they would be like, get a sponsor, work the steps, go to a meeting as soon as you get out. Um, you know, like, don't go get your hair done. Don't go get your nails done. Like, go to a meeting and get a sponsor and get plugged in and start working the steps as soon as possible, right? Uh, I didn't do any of that the first time. <laughs> so the second time around, I got out on a Friday morning and I you know, got dropped off at probation. I reported to my probation officer. And uh, thankfully, this is like a whole kind of God thing that the sober living that I was in, not the crazy one, not the crappy one. I had went to a better one after that. Um, But they, my dad had been in contact with them to see if, if they would allow me to come back. And, you know, the owner said they voted on it and like everybody was okay with me coming back, but they didn't have a bed available. Kid you not, three days before my discharge, they had a bed available and I got to go back. And so, um, so I go back to the house and I, you know, I'm digging through my stuff and I take a shower and I put clean clothes on and I didn't have my cell phone turned on at that point, but there was one meeting that I knew about that happened on Friday nights and I knew the bus route to get there and I had just enough money to get a ticket. Let's go. Yeah. So I go to that meeting and I'm shaking and I'm terrified. Um, that's so cool. It's a very important day in your life. So important. It was so important. And, um, probably probably one of the top 200 most important days of your life at the end of your life. You can look back and maybe rate that as one of the top 200 most important days of your life. Cause I feel like they tell everybody that when they get out of treatments and they're like, dude, don't go get a haircut. Don't see, go see your boy. Mm -mm. 
don't like you know whatever whatever go go get out go check in with your PO and go to your sober living house and go to a meeting yeah. I don't think very many people do it but the ones who do it you at least have a chance at that point because yeah. otherwise you know <laughs> I remember that term stinking thinking oh yeah they're like oh yeah because you know that stinking thinking will return quickly and then you might get a case of the efforts yeah. and then you get sad you get depressed you get scared you know and, and you're off to the races and then you're back to where danger lurks around every corner so anyways you got to that meeting that night and you were scared and I was terrified I was terrified so I you know I don't remember anything that anybody shared I remember that it was a lot of uh younger people and I was kind of intimidated and I felt like I didn't fit in Uh, I was very insecure I probably spent the entire meeting thinking about myself but I was also like I need to get a sponsor I need to get a sponsor I need to get a sponsor and so after the meeting um a few women came up to me like we do. Hopefully (laughs) it's what I do today. If I see a newcomer at a meeting, a new woman, I always try to speak to her, um, because they did it for me. And so a few women came up to me and they were talking and they were introducing themselves. And then somebody said, do you need a sponsor? And I said, yes, but, (laughs) uh, per my probation, I had to have a sponsor with five years sober or more. Okay. Um, so, I relayed that information and she said, oh, cool. Well, you need to talk to Lauren. And so she pointed across the room at Lauren and I look at her and I swear she was glowing. (laughs) Like that's the way I remember it. I swear she was glowing. And so I go talk to her and come to find out she was about two months away from getting five years. And I said, that's good. And she's still my sponsor today. And I absolutely love her. And, um, you know, I knew nothing about her when I asked her to sponsor me. I didn't know her story. I, all I knew was that she was this beautiful, blue-eyed, blonde woman that looked like she wasn't having a mental breakdown currently. And that was enough for me. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it's just been this absolutely beautiful relationship. I mean, she, I cannot, like words cannot describe the amount of gratitude I have for her. Um. So we started working together and, you know, I think we, she had me, that was on a Friday night. She had me meet her in a meeting on Sunday. We went and had coffee after the meeting and she started, like we started going through the book um, and she broke down step one for me and she gave me the words to describe what I had been experiencing for 11 years from 13 to when I got sober at 24. Um, you know, to to explain the phenomenon of craving, to explain the powerlessness of when I start, I cannot stop. And that I cannot mentally stay stopped on my own. You know, I, I think I identified with the mental obsession immediately. Because I'm like, oh yeah, that's the itty bitty shitty committee in my head telling me this time it'll be different. You need something to change the way you feel. Remember how amazing it was. Like all of that insanity all of that insanity. I was like, yes, that's me. Like that's what's going on in my head. <laughs> did she have heavy, did she have heavy drug use in her past? Or she no? did. Yeah. Okay, we so, had a lot in common. Okay, yeah. Good. I was yeah. just curious because some, mm-hmm. some that scares off some sponsors and some sponsees. Yeah. I can't relate to that. You know, I've seen that dynamic play mm-hmm. out, Yeah, but it's good that you guys had a very, a very uh, cohesive background. I want to make a couple of announcements real quick. I want to remind our listeners that I would love to read your listener feedback on the next episode of this podcast. So please email me directly at Mike at Let us know how you are enjoying this show and it is helping you. 
and we want to know more about your sober journey, so please email me. Please consider making a donation to this podcast so we can continue to share the message that recovery from addiction is possible. This donation process is simple, and your generosity will allow us to continue to bring this show advertisement-free. The process is fast, easy, and secure. Just visit SoberShares.com and click on the Donate button. Our website will also provide you with direct links to our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and X. Now I would like to mention a few listeners by name who have recently made a financial gift to move this show forward, Jennifer H. and Jessica O. And now let's turn our attention back to our guest. Can you please tell us a little bit about the first year of your sobriety and what was that like? What did you learn your first year of sobriety? My sobriety date is October 31st of 2016, but I feel like my first year didn't start until I got out of that treatment center at six months. And so I had, you know, that six months and I was, you know, in that place of, yeah, I'm going to get sober or I'm going to at least try this AA thing, these 12 steps thing. So, you know, I got my sponsor and I, I did everything that those beautiful women before had told me to do. And so, uh, in that first year of, you know, non-incarcerated sobriety, <laughs> I, it was a lot of, uh, working with my sponsor. So we met, we set it up to meet weekly and I would also, sometimes it was twice a week because she said, Hey, start, I want you, it was like, we were actually talking about this the other day. She was like, when did, when did we start going to Chicago group? And I was like, I think I had like two weeks and you were like, Hey, come to this meeting. And so she had just started, um, going to that meeting as well. And, uh, you know, she said, come to this meeting on Wednesday nights. And then I think like two weeks after that, she said, Hey, you need a home group. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but okay. And she said, this is your home group. Now go talk to that guy and get a commitment. So I was like, okay. And so it's been my home group ever since. And I've had a commitment ever since. Well, that's and where I met you. Yeah. And you were serving a commitment when I met you. <laughs> you were up at the podium making it. What were you doing? Making announcements or something? No, I, w- I think I was reading how it works that night. Yeah. 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 You got there quick. You were up there within a minute and a half. And you said your full name. I was like, ding, 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 ding. I was like, I'm here looking for a guest. And I have that girl's phone number. Let's go. Yeah. So. Um, Did that freak you out when I rolled up on you? Were you like, who is this guy? What does he want? Uh, no, you- I mean, I was just kind of like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I have, you know what's funny is like initially I thought maybe you were like no offense but I was like maybe this is a new guy and he's you know not really sure who to talk to I don't know but you were like you don't know me but I know you and I'm like oh Uh, god because part of me (laughs) had that fear of like oh my god is this somebody from my past that I don't remember or a process server (laughs) hand you the papers no I'm not worried about the legal I got all that yeah I got all that taken care of I think so yeah um, but it worked out. Yeah. So my sponsor and I met weekly and we got in the book and we pretty much went through it line by line. Um, and when it came to a step to work or an action to take, we took it. She showed me how to do it based on how she was shown how to do it. Um, and I'll say, you know, cause I had previously for a very short amount of time worked with a sponsor during those, you know, like two, three months before that second treatment center. And it, this looked very different. (laughs) You know, that first sponsor, bless her heart. She tried, I'm a knucklehead. And so, you know, she sat down with me and she ran through steps one, two, and three with me in about 30 minutes before a meeting one night. And she was like, does that make sense? And I'm like, yep, got it. I did not have it. Uh, I just wanted her to stop asking me questions. And, um, then she had me start working on a four step and it was like, 
it was not honest. It was not thorough. It was whatever. Let me just put some stuff on this paper. And so, um, I ended up, I did do like some semblance of a fist step with that first sponsor. And then, uh, I relapsed that night. And so, <laughs> wow. like, yeah. So this time around, I made sure like when, when it came to something I didn't understand, I asked questions. Um, when the book used language that didn't make sense to me or a word that I didn't know, I asked, or we looked it up. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't know, looking back, I don't know if that was like my willingness or my desperation or maybe my ego and wanting to be smart about all this stuff. I just knew that I had to do everything differently. And so, you know, she walked me through this journey. And when it came to step, you know, step one, I was like, yes, okay, got it. Because I had, I had had that experience, right? Um, people talk about, or people have asked me like, what is your step one experience? Well, my step one experience is a culmination of 11 years of drinking and drugging myself to death. Right. Um, and then finally having a woman take me through the, through the book and give me words to, to describe that. Right. Um, I could identify with the, the powerlessness and the mental obsession. I could identify with, you know, the physical powerlessness of what happens when I put drugs or alcohol into my body. And I could see the unmanageability in my life, right? Um, and so that I was like, okay, cool. Like that makes sense, you know? Um, and then we get into step two and kind of into some of the God stuff. And that was hard for me. It was hard. And, you know, kind of like what I talked about earlier, like I didn't grow up really religious, um, you know, I think my, my dad tried to instill good morals into me and good decision-making and critical thinking. And my grandmother tried to instill the, you know, the spirituality or the God stuff, right? Um, which I'm grateful for today because I can look back and see the value in those things. And now I can apply those morals <laughs> into my life and things like that. But when I was going through this stuff with my sponsor and we started talking about God, what I realized is that, you know, it really had absolutely nothing to do with God and everything to do with my perspective of myself in relation to God. Right. And so when we get to step two and the book says like we had to lay aside prejudice and I didn't know I was prejudiced. <laughs> I, you know, I really, I didn't, I don't think I fully understood what that meant. And so she broke it down and she said, what are your fixed ideas about God? And so, you know, and I'm a pen to paper kind of girl. And so she's like, I want you to write out everything, like all of your fixed ideas about God. And the reason why I say it has absolutely nothing to do with God is because all of my fixed ideas were, you know, I am not worthy. God could never forgive me for the things that I've done. Um, God could never care about somebody who's done the things that I've done, right? Like I'm unlovable, I'm unforgivable, I'm not good enough um, for yeah, this. You talked about <laughs> shame and anxiety a mm -hmm. lot. You said you carried a lot of shame and anxiety. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it, From when you were a little kid? Yeah. Really? Just roll, started rolling with it with a little kid. Yeah. I, and I don't know, like, it's just, it is <laughs> maybe what it's it is. mental illness. I'm not sure, you know, because I'm a dual. Nobody knows. I'm a dual <laughs> diagnosis too, but. Um. Nobody knows what it is. <laughs> but I relate totally to what you said like an hour ago when you were talking about drinking and drugging as a young person, 13, whatever. I feel the same way, man. I had anxieties and whatnot before I started drinking, but when I started drinking, I feel like I could take my first real deep breath. And so I quickly uh, started to use alcohol without my mental or cognitive ability to understand it as a medication. Mm-hmm. And I started to self-medicate with Coors Light. And I started yep. to self-medicate with marijuana. And I didn't know that until hindsight when I looked back on it. And I was like, dude, you started to use that as a social lubricant and a medication to lower your inhibition so you could be comfortable in your own skin. And it worked hella good for a long time. Until it turned on you like a boomerang and almost shredded you to pieces. And that's when I had to like get into sobriety and find God, which I didn't want to get sober or find God. (laughs) So it's it's so ridiculous. It's like, I can't believe how many millions of us have followed the same path. I think about sometimes when I record these podcasts with these people that people are going to be listening to these in a hundred years from now. I mean, Mm -hmm. because my goal is, my goal is to create the world's most popular, if I can, sober, uh, sobriety, 12 step related podcast. And my goal is to have three to 500 interviews. That's my goal is I want three to 500 interviews. And the reason I want to do that is because in two, three, four, 500 years from now when I'm not around and you know, I want people to hear what we were talking about in the first hundred years of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And I don't know you, but everything you're saying today I can relate to. So I'm wondering in two to 300 years when people are listening to our interview in you know, two, 300 years from now, and we're talking about the things that we're talking about. They're going to be like, me too, man. Yeah. Me too. That's exactly what happened to me. And they can listen to the recovery arc of our story and how you and I never wanted to become an alcoholic and drug <laughs> addict. We never wanted to come to AA. We never wanted to go to jail. We never wanted to find God. But in the end, we find that that's the best thing that ever happened to us. Absolutely. It's the best thing that ever happened to us, even though we did not vote for it or think it was a good idea or sign off on it. It's like all this stuff happened without our permission and behind our back. And it dragged (laughs) us closer to quote unquote air quotes, God, or whatever you want to call your higher power, Allah, Jesus. I mean, whatever you're into atheist agnostic, I don't care, but something that's a power greater than ourselves. So we're not so selfish and self-centered. Because that's where I was so much of the time before I got sober. I just thought about myself constantly. Mm-hmm. And I'm still coming out of that process. I'm still healing <laughs> in the recovery. Well, I think it's an ongoing that. thing, right? Like 100%. It's, even the book says on page 62 where it's talking about our troubles we think are basically of our own making. Um, we're an extreme example of self-will run riot, though we usually don't think so. But then it says, above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Right? And then it goes on to say, we have moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them. Right? We had to have God's help. And so, you know, I I often, and that kind of goes back to, you know, I can't do this perfectly. I'm not going to do this perfectly. Every single morning when I wake up, the first thing I think about is me. I am a selfish, self-centered alcoholic. <laughs> that is my truth, right? That's your auto set default. <laughs> my truth is twofold, right? One, uh. that like step one is true for me, that I'm physically and mentally powerless over alcohol, yeah. but also that I'm selfish and self-centered to my core. And I have to have God, right? I have to have God's help with that. And so 
that's why, you know, it's so, and it's so crazy, like talking about, you know, kind of coming in and coming to terms with the God thing and how today it is the most important part of my life, you know? I agree. So it's, it's really cool. <laughs> I was driving here, I was driving here to meet you today and I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about God when I was driving here to meet you this morning and I was sitting here thinking about like, I cannot believe that I think about God so much now. And I can't believe that I rely on God so much now because I grew up a little boy who didn't believe and had nothing and was yeah. self-reliant and self-reliance failed me. But that was what I was rolling with for a long, long time. And it's shocking to me when I hear myself say these words and it's shocking to me when I observe myself taking these actions yeah. and it's shocking when I feel myself changing and getting closer to God and getting more God and less me and taking on service commitments and trying to put myself in a position where I can be a maximum service to others and realizing these crazy things that this book tells me and these programs tell me like what anytime that I'm disturbed or something wrong with me, mm -hmm. I'm like, what? That is so, that is, <laughs> that sounds like witchcraft. That sounds like witchcraft. But then when I think about it, I say, oh yeah, okay, okay. I'm selfish and self-centered in the extreme. That means I've made decisions based on self at some point in the past, which placed me in a position to be harmed, which is why I'm upset now. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> and then I'm like, you came from the literature, bro. Well, it and it's so count it's so counterintuitive, right? For me it is. For for I think I'm a wild child. Yeah, it's it's you sound like you were a wild ass child oh too. God. You living in a car out by the lake drinking four locos. Oh my god. You're a gangster insane. too. <laughs> You're like undercover gangster. It was insane. And so yeah, it's I mean, sometimes when I'm you know, telling when I'm, when I'm talking to people, when I get up to the podium or whatever, and I say my sobriety date, I'm just absolutely baffled because I had no intentions of living this long, right? I had no intentions of living past 25. Uh, and you know, God's got jokes cause I got sober at 24 and mm -hmm. I'm still here. Um, and like, I never could have imagined my life today. It was not in the cards for me. And all of it is a direct result of my relationship with God that I've gained through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Really, all of it, you know, it began with that step one. And then really just that being open-minded and willing in step two. You know, my sponsor had me write that prejudice list and she asked me a really important question. And, and the book asked it, but she phrased it a little different way. So the book you know, ask us, do I now believe or am I willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? And so the way she asked me after we went through that and she just simply said, are you willing to believe that everything you think you know about God is wrong? <laughs> this girl's a trip, dude. And I was like, <laughs> I guess I kind of have to, you know, like if my life depends on this, because that was something that was made clear to me in my, you know. Your sponsor sounds like a spiritual gangster. Dude, she's, she's throwing it like, down. She's, she's throwing it down. Incredible, incredible. I love her so much. And did uh, she do that exercise with you since you had so much trouble with step two? Did she do that exercise with you when she told you to get a piece of paper and a pencil and write down all the characteristics and, you know, attributes that you wanted your higher power to have? Did she do that or 
because I know she told you to write down your limitations of, of God and your, and your fixed ideas of God, but did she tell you to, she did. Yeah. Yeah. On the flip side of that, um, she, yeah, she said, okay, what do you want? What do you want or need from your higher power? And you wrote everything down. Well, I wrote, you know, a really, I wrote, you know, a power that loves me unconditionally um, and forgives me for all the things I've done and that will guide me in my life to be a better person. And what did it feel like when that started to come true in your life and you started to believe in that particular definition of a higher power? How did you feel? It felt good, you know, because some, another one of my prejudices that I kind of realized is that when people are talking about God, because I literally would sit in meetings early on and I would just cringe when people would talk about their God or, you know, when people would mention specific religions and I was just like, why are you doing that? Stop talking. Like it would make me so uncomfortable. And then I realized that they're talking about their own personal conception of God, right? Going back to, you know, asking yourself what these terms mean to you, right? When it's just like sitting here with you, like when I say God, this is my personal conception, my relationship, my interpretation of a higher power. And when you're talking about God, it's yours, right? They don't have to be the same. I know, right? Because either way, it's this force that we are, you know, relying on and allowing to, allowing and and being guided by. It's cool that we right? can hang out and be like that because I've got some friends in my circle that are like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Like they talk about the <laughs> Jesus all the time. Yeah. And then I got other cats that are, you know, Jewish. And then I got other cats that are, you know, atheists and agnostic. And I know a couple of Hindu dudes and I know a couple of Buddhist dudes. And we talk about it here and there. But the Jesus dudes are real mouthy. <laughs> Like they, they, they let it go and I, I'm cool with it. I'm fine with it. I'm like, you know, do what you got to do, 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 do you be you. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that your mom was trying to push y'all towards the Methodist church. Have you made any reconciliations with your, your, your faith of origin? Are you, are you doing anything Methodist wise? Are you spiritual? Are you going to church? You're not going to church. What are you doing with all that? No, I don't go to church. Um, and I, I did, I did go to church a little bit in early sobriety. Um, and you know, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't my vibe. You know, I didn't feel like it was something that was feeding me in a spiritual way. Um, and later on, this was, I don't even know, probably a year later, if that, um, I got to this point where I had worked the 12 steps and, you know, and I, I feel like I had had a spiritual awakening, but I began to get stagnant in my spiritual life. And my sponsor said, or she asked me, she loves to pose these thought-provoking questions, which I love. Um, And I try to do it with my girls as well. But she said, I want you to think about where or how you experience God and then seek that. And so what I came up with is I experienced God through Alcoholics Anonymous and through sponsoring women. And so I began to seek that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I began to you know, not just perfect my spiritual life through the daily disciplines that the program gives us, but also enlarge it through introducing or not introducing, but enlarge it through listening to other things. You know what I mean? Like I'm a big fan of spiritual writings. Eckhart Tolle is Mm -hmm. amazing. (laughs) Um, But exploring, you know, all of the different paths to spirituality, because I think that there is something to gain from all of them. 
Yeah. You know, I mentioned earlier, it was I used to think like either everybody's wrong <laughs> <laughs> and we really are on a floating rock going nowhere for no reason, doing nothing, just existing in our tiny little, you know, very brief lives. Or there is something bigger that's guiding us and we all just have different interpretations of it, which is kind of what I lean more towards because there's so many things out there Um you know, there's so many different organized religions because I think really my my main prejudice was with organized religion. I felt like there was a lot of pressure to be a certain way, do a certain thing, not do this. I, I remember uh, after my family stopped going to church when I was probably like 10 or 11, I started going to a church with my best friend because her family went every Sunday morning and I was living at her house on the weekends due to the nature of dysfunction at my house. <laughs> and uh, so we would go to church on Sunday mornings and I remember sitting in the pew and I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely positive that the preacher did not say these things, but what I heard, <laughs> what I heard was that if you cuss and smoke cigarettes and kiss boys, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity. He might've said that. I don't think he did. <laughs> like, I, I really don't think he did. <laughs> You know, he probably talked, gave some amazing sermon on the love of Jesus and all that stuff. But that's what I heard. And so I made this kind of unconscious decision from a very early age that I'm going to hell in a handbasket. So I'm going to have fun. Right. <laughs> I'm going to have fun. And that's kind of how I lived my life. Just reckless doing what I wanted to do. Like, you know, especially, um, you know, during the the year or so that I was homeless and on the streets, like it's a dog eat dog world out there. And I very much operated from the mentality of like, I'm going to get mine and I don't care who I have to step on to get it. Right. I mean, so like, yeah, self will run riot. <laughs> I feel like is minimizing it a little bit, but uh, that's how I live my life. And so, you know, coming into the program and really, coming to terms with the fact that there is a power greater than myself and allowing myself to be loved and taken care of by that power was a really big step for me. But I'll tell you what kind of solidified it or what gave me hope in that sense. And the book talks about it, right? Of seeing how God's working in the lives of people around us. Um, it was evident to me that there was something working in my sponsor right? Um, because, you know, when we start, as we worked together, as sponsors typically do, like as you're going through the steps with someone, you also share parts of your own story with them. And so through her doing that, and then seeing where she was and how she was when she was in that moment, when she was working with me, it's obvious there was something bigger. Yeah. And you believed her stories of her past. Yeah. I felt the same way about my sponsor, Gary P. I, I saw the light in his eyes. I saw that God had obviously decided to save his ass because what he told me about himself was horrifying. Yeah. Uh, the way he, the old Gary, I didn't know the old Gary, but he told me about the old Gary and I knew the new Gary and I saw him and I was like, I was like, that's a long way to come for a dude. And he had five years sober when I met him and I was mm -hmm. like, unbelievable, man. And so I kind of just borrowed his, his hope and borrowed his higher power and borrowed yeah. his God. And he was I wouldn't say he was bossy, but he had assignments for me, man. <laughs> He's like, yo, go home and read more about alcoholism, and there's a solution, and meet me tomorrow night at 6.30 at uh, Coco's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I was like, which one? He goes, the one in Oceanside, dude. <laughs> the good one. The one in Oceanside. I was like, okay. So I'd go there, and he would freaking show up, and he would be there. And we would talk about, the first thing he would say is, did you read more about alcoholism and there's a solution? And you know my answer was, every time, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because alcohol and drug addiction put me um, in a real yes, sir mode when mm-hmm. I got here because it administered a terrific beating to me. And uh, I didn't realize how high of a tolerance for pain that I had until I looked back in retrospect. Same. And I was like, Michael, <laughs> you were administered a custom-made, high-end ass-whipping by alcohol and drug addiction, <laughs> and you just stayed in there, bro. Yeah. You just stayed in there and just take, kept taking those body shots. I was like, I'm impressed, but I'm also not impressed that you allowed the alcohol and drug addiction to take you where it did. And so anyways, I was in a yes sir mode and Gary P told me what to do. And he told me so many assignments, not just reading assignments, but writing assignments and action mm-hmm. assignments. And, and, and you're going to do this and we're going to do that. And you need to do this. And then he got a surgery on his back. He had to go and get a medical procedure on his back mm-hmm. and they gave him painkillers and he lived by himself. So he wasn't monitored. And so he started taking painkillers after the surgery and like I said, he had five years sober when he got the surgery and was administered these painkillers. And he was dead within probably three months mm. because he um, went back out. He relapsed at five mm. years sober. And so he was dead uh, within three months. <clears throat> and so I, at that point, was a Alcoholics Anonymous orphan mm. at this point in, yeah. in San Diego, California just going around club to club and everybody knew who I was and everybody knew who Gary was and everybody knew he was dead and everybody knew he was, that was, that was his sponsee and he was my sponsor. So I just rolled around like an orphan and I had already done my f- one, two and three and four with him. And I was ready. I was calling him to, to, you know, set up a time and place to do my fifth step. So I'm sitting there with this four step written, mm. walking around from group to group to group with nobody to read it to. And I went to this meeting at the um, harbor in Oceanside at the marina one Saturday morning. It was a misty, misty Saturday morning. I didn't know anybody there, but I knew that there was a meeting there. So I got there. The fog was rolling in across the marina. I could hear all the boats creaking with the waves and the bow lines tightening and loosening. And it was haunted. And uh, I sat down, and these guys all showed up, and we started talking. And I told them what was going on, and this guy that I do not know I don't know his name. I never saw this dude before, and I never saw this dude again. He rolls up on me after the meeting. He says, hey, man. I was like, yeah. He goes, my name's so-and-so. I don't even remember the dude's name or what he looked like. He goes, I want you to know something. There's a, there's a preacher. There's a priest at this church in Carlsbad, California, and uh, he's not an alcoholic, and he's not an AA, but he's heard a lot of AA fist steps, mm. a bunch of them. And he's familiar with us, and he's familiar with hearing fist steps straight out of the big book. And so you can go to him and do it. Here's his name and phone number. And so I said, okay, man. So I went home, and I was like, I got nobody else to read it to. And yeah. so I, and the book says you could do that. Yeah. It says you can find a closed-minded, a closed-mouth, a closed-mouth friend. Uh, it says, don't do it with your wife. Yeah, <laughs> it says, definitely not. Don't do it with your wife or your <laughs> husband. Don't do that. But it says you can go to the clergy. Yep. And so I was like, the book says I can do it. So anyways, I called <laughs> I called the phone number, and uh, the lady answered, and she I heard her yelling at the guy, and he's like, yeah, tomorrow at 4 o'clock. 
And so I was like, she's like, he said tomorrow at 4 o'clock. I was like, okay. So I, I ended up going there, and I won't go into the whole story because I've already told this whole story on another podcast uh, it, you know, episode, but mm-hmm. uh, something magical went down that day, and I ended up doing my fifth step with that 89-year-old priest. Yeah. That's amazing. And it set me free. That was one of the top 100 best days of my life. I yeah. know that. Even if I lived at 80, 95, 100, even if I lived that long, I'll be able to look back and say, dude, the day that you did your fist up with that preacher at that church in Carlsbad, California, was one of the top 100 best days of your life because that's the day you got free from your past and you walked into your new life. And better than all that, the most appropriate words that apply to that day is that's the day you got your soul back. Mm. That's the day you got your soul back. And that's the day you truly joined Alcoholics Anonymous in a way that your trajectory was going to be rocketing upward. Yeah. You know, you were a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You did the first five steps. You didn't skip on any of the cement. You built a triumphant arch, which you passed through a free man, and you're able to go on with the rest of the program. But that is the day that you solidified your um, life in recovery, and you got your soul back. And so that was a beautiful, beautiful experience for me. Yeah, I can completely relate to that. My <laughs> my fourth step was was difficult, I'll say. It was, and I don't recommend this, I dragged my feet on it because... I think really I was just so filled with that shame. And although my sponsor had shared a little bit about her story with me at that point, I still had those thoughts of, you know, I'm, (laughs) I've done terrible things. I have done so many bad things. And, uh, if I put it on this paper, it makes it real and it means that I have to face it. And, um, so I was, I was hesitant, but I will say like at the end of the day, I knew like, if I don't put it down, I'm not going to get free from it. And I can't, like, I had heard so many horror stories of people going back out because they were dishonest on their fourth step. <laughs> so uh, eventually, and I dragged my ass, and, and eventually my sponsor was like, listen, because I, I don't think I really had a full understanding of why I was doing a fourth step. And she said, you know, she gave me incredible wisdom that I'm doing a fourth step to get to identify and get rid of everything that's blocking me from God. And if I don't, I'm going to go back out and I'm probably going to die. And so that little, little fire under me. And so I got through it and I remember going into her house to, to do my fist step. (laughs) And I was absolutely convinced, like I was for sure that she was going to stop me at some point and like kick me out of her house and be like, don't ever call me again. You know, because I'm just so terrible. (laughs) What happened instead is through most of it, she nodded and smiled and said, yeah, I did that too. Or let me tell you about this one time. (laughs) And so it was this really beautiful experience uh, where I didn't feel alone. And I felt, you know, not so bad. Like maybe I'm not a terrible person. Um, but I also got this experience to connect to her on this spiritual level that I had never experienced with another person just by, you know, just through the process of sharing and being vulnerable and open with someone. It was the first time in my life that I had no secrets. Yeah, right. And it was incredibly powerful. And then similar to what you were saying about your experience when I went home and did the hour of meditation, 
um, and then got into six and seven, that was the first time that I can kind of pinpoint really beginning to have this spiritual experience, right? Um, because in that hour, I felt peace for the first time, I think. Um, and, and it was really cool because I didn't think that was possible for me. I really didn't think it was going to happen for me. Like I'd, yeah, I'd come in and I had this willingness and I had this desperation, but in the back of my mind, I was sure that at some point, like it's all going to blow up and it's all going to fail and it's not going to work and it's going to be for nothing. Um, but again, I had no other options. Right. And so it was, it was a really pivotal moment for me too, of, of getting that fist step done and being able to say like, I have absolutely no secrets today, you know? Um, and yeah, I love, I think doing, doing fist steps, um, like it was powerful for me to do a fist step, but it's also equally powerful for me to sit down and listen to a fist step. It's one of my favorite things. Like I, my sponsees probably think I'm crazy. Cause I'm like, okay, you're on your fourth step now. And then we're going to do your fist step. And I'm like all excited. And they're like, oh God, this chick is crazy. And I'm like, no, like I'm excited because you have no idea the freedom that is on the other side of this for you. It's just absolutely incredible. Yeah, I've heard a lot of fist steps. I love doing them. I've got a couple techniques I use when I listen to fist steps. One of my early sobriety techniques is I would put them in my Cadillac in the passenger seat, and I would jump in the driver's seat, and we would drive around town for, yeah. for one, two, three, four, five hours. And as we're going, we're talking, mm-hmm. you know? I'm asking questions. They're, you know, We do the fears. We do the sex. We do the yes. resentments. We talk about, you know, what was your part? What does it affect? Who are you mad at? Um, we just talk about so many things. And then we get to the fears and we break those down. Then we get the sex conduct and we break that down. And we just kind of go through it. And, and the whole time that we're driving around this big old Cadillac, I'm thinking, um, we're going somewhere. Um, we're going to end up somewhere beautiful. And what I mean by we're going to end up somewhere beautiful is like I'm in control of the car. Maybe God's in control of the car. I don't know who's <laughs> driving the car. Somebody's driving the car. Hopefully. But we're, <laughs> but we're not trying to like end up like at a car recycling plant or something. I'm trying to end up at a lake. Yeah. I'm trying to end up at a botanical garden. I'm trying to end up in a forest. I'm trying to end up somewhere where there's wildflowers that I know they're growing across a pasture. Mm-hmm. We're going somewhere um, in the city. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And when we get there... I just turn the car off, kick the sunroof back, and we just sit there and keep talking. And and that's the way that we do it. There's also times now where um, I don't drive around all the time anymore, especially when the gas prices got up to like $5 a right. gallon. They did crank up to about $5 a gallon a couple of years ago. I was like, maybe we don't drive so much. Maybe we just park. Yeah. Um, I like to do them, um, if I can, outside. You know, if it's beautiful, mm-hmm. hopefully it's 72 and sunny that day. And we'll find like a koi pond or a fish pond or a beautiful bench uh, at a park where there's a lake or a pond and trees in front of us and I like to try to do it outside but I'm a big fan of four and five those are my favorite steps those are my favorite steps and you don't hear a lot of people say that I don't hear a lot of people say oh I love four and five but I love me some four and five I love I mean I think I love all the steps but four and five were really they were really impactful for me I mean I I still (laughs) And this has kind of been passed down to me from my sponsor of like the power of writing inventory, right? And I always tell the women I sponsor like, yeah, you're writing a four-step, but this will not be the last time you write inventory. 
because I think it is such an incredible tool. And like I said, like I'm, I'm a pen to paper kind of person. Um, if I am really struggling with, you know, a certain situation or a certain area of my life, like typically I'll already know it in my mind. I need to write inventory and then I get the direction from my sponsor, write inventory and then we process it. And it may be something that I know, you know, in the back of my head, I know the answer. I know the defects that are coming out for me, but there's just something powerful about seeing it on the paper. So you're a journaler? Do you journal? No. Really? No. I mean, I used to, you know, back in the day, I used to write like cheesy poetry and stuff. But Uh Do you have something you'd like to recite for us? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. She busts out her phone. Goes to the (laughs) notes section. Once upon a time, there was a man from Nantucket. But no, it's just a really powerful tool. And I think that, you know, something else that uh, was really, and this is just on my heart to share, because I don't think it gets enough uh, attention. Maybe it does. I don't know. But something that I'm really passionate about too is in the sex inventory and the sane and sound sex ideal, because that has been huge for me in my life. Um, and you know, and I think sometimes it's something that gets missed or overlooked, or maybe it's a little underrated. Right. Um, and so that was, you know, my sex conduct for me, what I learned is that my sex conduct is directly related to my spiritual condition, right? And I think from talking to people over, you know, my seven years of sobriety, it's, it's that way for a lot of people, you know? And I think there's a reason why we write three different inventories, you know? It says these are the common manifestations of self. There is a reason why they included sex conduct in that. It's something that we need to look at. Um, and it was definitely something for me that I didn't realize my selfishness was manifesting so crazy in, um, but also that tool of having a sane and sound ideal to live up to, to shape my future sex life. Um, that was something that was really important in going into my relationship with my husband because he was my first sober relationship. We met, (laughs) don't. This is one of those things of like, do as I say, not as I do, but do what you're going to do. But (laughs) we met at, I want to say we had, both of us had about nine months sober, kind of funny story. He, so I got sober October 31st of 2016. He got sober November 1st of 2016. So a day apart. We did not know each other yet. (laughs) So you have one more day than he does. I have one more day than he does. Thank God. And, um, we, we hadn't met yet, but we met when we both had like eight or nine months sober, uh, not in AA, actually at a job. And uh, when I met him, I just remember thinking, like, obviously, like, he's amazing and he's incredible. And this is a guy that I'm like really, really into. But I also remember thinking, I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to mess this up. Like, I messed up every other relationship in my life. I don't want to hurt him like I hurt everybody else. Um, and so I had this sane and sound ideal that I had written in my four step. And the way my sponsor had me do it is, uh, I wrote like two different pages. So one of characteristics that I thought God would want me to have in an ideal partner. Right. And she's like, it can be anything. And most of it was just generic stuff. Like somebody who is respectful and, um, you know, tolerant and loving somebody who practices spiritual principles and other things that were important to me as, you know, somebody who prioritizes their personal relationship with God was important to me and different things like that. And then on the flip side of writing, 
you know, a page or a couple paragraphs of ideal characteristics that I thought God would want me to have, right? And so the uh, the kicker or the deal or the catch was that I was not <laughs> I was not allowed to be with that person until I was the person on my page. Wow. Right? Well, I've never heard this before. Yeah. I mean, it's powerful stuff. And, and your so, sponsor su- suggested this? Mm-hmm, yeah. I got to meet this lady. <laughs> and so uh, when I met my husband, uh, one thing that I did completely differently is that I told my sponsor about it pretty immediately. Like I said, we met at work. And so it was probably like two weeks later. We had just been kind of, you know, a little harmless flirting in the workplace, right? (laughs) A little office call center job. And then one day he, I was sitting out in the smoking area and I didn't have any money. I'm, you know, I'm on probation. I'm on the bus. I'm in sober living. I've got food stamps, right? Um, And I was sitting in the smoking area on lunch break and he walks out and he's like, Hey, are you going to, are you, not going to go get lunch. And I was like, well, unless Jack in the box takes food stamps, I'm going to sit right here, you know, cause I literally had no money. Like I hadn't got my first paycheck yet. And, uh, he was like, come on, I'll buy you lunch. And so we go to Jack in the box. Cause it was the only thing right there. It was like a QT and a Jack in the box. And then everything else is like industrial office buildings. And, uh, so he buys me lunch and we get to talking and find out that we're both in the program and we share our sobriety dates and, you know, he's working with a sponsor and we had a lot in common in our stories. And I called my sponsor and I was like, Hey, so (laughs) there's a guy (laughs) and she's like, okay. Um, and I just invited her into every aspect of that, you know, anytime I was having really strong feelings, I would call her and I I would pray and I would call her and say, what do I do? You know, and she would always direct me, not always, she would direct me back to my sane and sound. And she would say, does he match your sane and sound? And I'd say, well, I think so, at least today. Right. (laughs) And so through that, through a lot of prayer, um, Another thing that I did differently is I invited God into my relationship with him every single day. And there were even moments when he and I would be hanging out and, you know, I would kind of, I can't think of a specific example, but I would get to a place of uncertainty where I'm not sure how to respond, right? And so it's like, okay, the old me would do this and I don't want to do that anymore. And so I would just stop him and be like, okay, hang on. I have to go to the bathroom and pray right now because I'm not sure how to move forward with this. And I don't, you know, and so, um, we had a lot of really open, candid conversations in the beginning. And one day, probably, I don't know, about a month into this kind of courting, whatever, modern day courting, dating thing. We hadn't really dated. Like we hung out a lot on breaks at work. And then after work, he would, he was at Salvation Army. <laughs> he was also on probation. And he would ride the train with me down to Mockingbird Station, which is where I would get on the bus to go to my sober living. And we would have about 30 minutes to sit at the train station and talk. And then he would get on the train and ride back to the Parkland Station, walk into the Salvation Army like two minutes before curfew. And so that was like the extent of our kind of getting to know each other phase early on. And then we would hang out for a few hours on the weekend. I remember he came over and and mowed the yard at my sober living (laughs) because it was all girls and like, we didn't want to do it. And he was just like, I'll do it. And he came over and he mowed the yard and I gave him a glass of water. And then he said, okay, I'll see you later. 
you know? Um, so it was really cool. And he consistently matched my sane and sound ideal. And it's like, I, a, it's like a little sober love story. Yeah, it really, a, it really a was. a movie about it. It really was. And I remember being so nervous uh, a few months in. I was like, I really wanted my sponsor to meet him. I was like, I really want you to meet this guy and tell me what you think. And she was like, okay. And so she met him. And then I called her after. And I'm like, what do you think? And she's like, I think he's cool. I like him. You know? And I was like, okay, I got sponsor's approval. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it just really... It was do y'all so, go to the same group? I mean, does he go to the Chicago group? Or is he does, it? yeah. So it was interesting. Um, a few months into it, I think after he got out of the Salvation Army, I was still in sober living, but I was just pretty much like, hey, I go to this meeting on Wednesday night, so like, if, if you want to come, you can. And he started coming. And, um, you know, but we did also attend meetings separate from each other as well. There were some meetings that we would go to together and that was kind of a learning experience, right? Um, I knew that my recovery could not be grounded in what his looked like. Is it scary? Is it, is it scary being in love with dating, marrying, being pregnant by another alcoholic? Mm -mm. Really? I wouldn't have it any other way because we... we speak the same language. Do you guys have you a know? relapse plan? Like if he relapses or you relapse, do you have a plan? Have y'all talked about that? I'm it, not saying it's going to no, happen. No, it's nothing. It's definitely possible, right? Like both of us but, know that our, you know, But have sobriety. you ever talked about it or no? Yeah. Yeah, really? we did. We talked about it early on. Um, and we've kind of, you know, talked about it here and there since then of like, Just you know, if one of us relapses, it. then we will, you know, one, prioritize our personal relationships with God and try to help the other person if they're willing to help. But, you know, really it's, we understand that it could potentially be a part of the story. Hopefully it's not. Yeah. I I had that discussion with my wife. Uh, My wife is not an alcoholic um, and she knows that I'm sober. And I think I had like, I don't know, 10 years plus or something like that when I got married to her. I don't know. A long time. I've been sober a long time. But I told her, I was like, listen, uh, if I ever relapse, run. Yeah, pretty much. Get away from me because yeah. you don't know this mic. Yeah. You don't want to know that. You know this mic. You don't want to know that yeah. mic. I mean, offer me help. Try to help. Exactly. But if yeah. I don't, if I don't, if I start bullshitting or shucking and jiving or lying and cheating and, and, and not doing the deal and not, not, not accepting help, then I highly encourage you to take our son and save yourself and get away from me. Cause that's the best thing you can do for me. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm telling you now as a sober mic, the drunk mic will not tell you that. Right. So listen to this mic. And I, I I hope that didn't scare her because we had that conversation laying in bed one night around 11 PM. It was dark out. Yeah. And I just, you know, I said, Hey man, I got to talk to you. I tell you something. She, and she had no idea I was going to say that. I was like, I just want you to know that I love you and I care about you more than anything. And I love us, but I, I'm not planning on drinking. I don't want to drink. I'm not <laughs> going to relapse. But I'm just saying if I ever do, you're, you're, I love you and respect you enough to tell you to get away from me. Yeah. You know? It needs to be talked about for sure. And I think that's kind of the, the gist of how we see it too, is that if, if one of us does go back out, like don't, don't try to save me. You know what I mean? Like, yes, encourage me to get help, but you don't, yeah. if you are starting mm-hmm. to get into that savior complex, if I can get her sober, you need to check yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So what's <laughs> so. the plan? So what's the plan when the baby gets here as far as like, um, as far as meeting attendance and frequency and cadence and all that? Do you guys, I mean, how many do you go to now a week? Comfortable three or four? 
So I, I typically never miss my home group. Um, I, you know, lately it's looked a little different. I used to have, you know, my home group as well as one or two committed meetings a week. And lately I've taken on a new sponsee. And so I sponsor, you know, a few, a handful of other women. And so there's been times where it's instead of going to a meeting, I'm meeting with a sponsee instead um, and things like that. And so... I don't know. I've kind of been shopping around a little bit lately, but it's also I took a different position at work that's a little more hands-on and time-consuming as well. So kind of trying to figure out the group with that. If I have a friend or a sponsee sister or somebody who's speaking, I'll go support them in that and things like that. So I think uh, when baby comes, we've talked about how, you know, obviously for the first few weeks it may be, you know, maybe we hop on some Zoom meetings or uh, maybe we ask somebody to bring a meeting to the house or something like that. And then after that, we'll just kind of alternate or play it by ear. Yeah. My home group loves babies. <laughs> they love babies. Yay. And so I've already been informed that bring it, bring it. we can bring the kid and somebody will watch the kid. And, uh-huh. um, you know, and, and so I'm not worried about it. Like, I'm actually kind of excited about... Um, about our son being introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous from an early age. All of my home groups, Aquarius, Preston, Clean Air North, and Addison, uh, Town North, and Farmer's Branch, they all know my son and have known him for his whole life because I used to bring him up there yeah. like a proud daddy <laughs> in the baby carrier. You know, yep. the, the one you snap snap and go, you snap it in the back of yep. the thing in the car, and it clicks and unclicks, um, baby carrier. And so I would um, bring him up there with me when he was infant to give my wife a break. Cause mm-hmm. she needed to sleep yeah. and I was super excited and proud to be a dad. And I didn't really care if they wanted an infant there or not. The infant was going to be there and come yeah. with me. Cause I wanted to like go to a meeting and give my wife, wife a break and show everybody my new kid. Yeah. And when he would coo and make noises and cry, I was like, that is what it is. My brothers and yeah. sisters. Yeah. yeah. I've never gotten upset with anybody for having a baby in a I meeting love ever. It. I love it. <laughs> Even young kids, when they come in, I see these, I, and a lot of times I'm just like, I see young single moms come in with, you know, two, three, four, five-year-old girls and, and kids, and they start making noise, and I can see the mother get uncomfortable, and I'm just thinking, don't, don't man. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Just stay stay in here and stay in the pocket. And I watched a lot of my other friends grow up, their children, in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, the ancillary, you know, side sideshow stuff, because they're there. They're waiting in the lobby. They're waiting on the couch in the in the front office area, and I really, really like that. Yeah. So has the desire to drink or use drugs again ever returned since you've been sober? And what have you done about it? Yeah, so I think that (laughs) trying to decide like how far back I want to go. So like when I had that experience with my fist up and was six and seven, um, a couple weeks after that, I had this really cool experience where I was walking to the bus stop. It was kind of a chilly, like, fall day, and I felt the sun hit my face, and it kind of warmed me, and I had this realization that I hadn't thought about drinking or doing anything to change the way I feel in a couple weeks. And I was like, oh, my God, like, it worked. And so I called my sponsor, and I was, like, in tears. And I was like, you were right. Like, it worked. Like, I think my mental obsession's been removed. And she was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, and it was just such a, this, uh, it was an, an amazing experience. And this really cool realization. Um, and I kind of like rode on that spiritual high for a while. You know, um, I got to, 
you know, I started working the steps and I got a lot of freedoms from some amends that I made. If we have time, we can talk about too. Um, there were a couple of amends that were really powerful for me. And then, you know, getting into 10, 11 and 12. And I'll tell you, I did not want to sponsor in the beginning. It's kind of a, a caveat, but I really want to want to talk about this because I've had a lot of people tell me that when I share this experience, it's valuable to them. So uh, when I got to, you know, got through the steps, I kind of just got to this place of like, okay, cool, I'm, I'm good now. <laughs> and my sponsor was like, you know, you need to go get a commitment to carry the message. So I got a commitment for an H&I to treatment center. Um, tell, but I, tell the listeners that don't know what's oh, H&I. Sorry, it means hospitals and institutions. So it's where we carry or where we take a meeting into a treatment center. And um, so I got a commitment to do that weekly, but I wasn't like staying after and talking to anybody. I would give out my number if they asked. I wasn't fully committed to it. Um, and then a couple months in, my sponsor was like, listen, you have to give this away or you're not going to keep it for very much longer. And I was like, fine. Okay. <laughs> you know, and she was like, what's your hesitancy? And so we had, we got to have this conversation about, uh, my feelings of inadequacy. You know, I didn't feel, I just didn't feel qualified because I'm thinking like externally, like, okay, I'm on probation. <laughs> I'm on the bus. I'm in sober living. I'm on food stamps. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not somebody that somebody looks at and they're like, I want to be her when I grow up. Like I'm barely adulting as it is. And, um, you know, thankfully my, my sponsor reminded me that the only thing that qualifies me to sponsor somebody is that I've had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps and that it's my job to help someone else have that. And so, um, I hadn't, I had stopped working at the place, the call center where I met my husband, but he called me up one day and he said, Hey, uh, I don't know if you remember this, you know, this girl, so-and-so she, you know, is really struggling right now. And I think, I think you should talk to her. And so I called her up, <laughs> I called her up and I said, Hey, uh, you know, what's going on? And she told me like she had a sponsor, but it wasn't working out. And she was really struggling and she was like feeling like, you know, drinking and drugging and all these things. And so I was like, okay, well, uh, you need a sponsor and I need a sponsee. So I'm going to sponsor, you know, <laughs> and she was like, okay. And so she was my first sponsee. Um, and getting into like working with her again, like it fed into this spiritual high. I mean, it was, it was like a, a spiritual experience on a whole nother level sponsoring a woman. And that's when I fell in love with it. Um, and did you ever run to your sponsor and be like, what do I do next? Yeah. Constantly. <laughs> the beautiful thing that's about, the secret. <laughs> yes. The cool thing about sponsorship is that I have a sponsor that I can For call. Real, I do. I call my sponsor all the time when my guys have problems. Yes. I'm, I'm like, let me take a beat. Hold on. Let me talk to my man. I'll get back to you on yes. that. And then I ask him and I'm like, he said this, 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 what do you, what do I do? He's like, dummy, do him, do this. Tell yeah. him this, tell him this, <laughs> tell him God's everything or he's nothing. What's his yeah. choice to be? Yeah. And he just tells me, and then I parrot that back to him and then he takes it like a baby bird. Yeah. I'm like, let's go. Yeah. But I also have strong memories of what my sponsor did with me. Yeah. Well, I think like some of it for me, you know, I didn't remember what my sponsor had me do. So, um, it was cool because I could also just always like when in doubt, go back to the book. Right. right. Um, like it doesn't have to be these superfluous, superfluous, you know, extra assignments and things like that. Sometimes those are helpful because again, I don't think sponsorship is this cookie cutter thing. Um, I think that it sometimes needs to be tailored to who you're working with, but that was an incredible experience. And so I'm on this like spiritual high 
And, you know, some people call it the pink cloud, right? In this first like years of sobriety. And then I, you know, I got off probation and I, you know, I graduated the court program that I was in. I got early release from probation. So I'd signed for five years. I got off in two and a half. Um, And at that point, my husband, we weren't married yet, but we moved in together. And so it was like all these big changes. And I got down to, you know, I had the, the one sponsee instead of doing four meetings a week, because I had to do four meetings a week for probation. Uh, once I got off, I was like, well, I just need to go to my home group. <laughs> and then it was like, man, do I really have to go this week? You know, and then it was kind of uh, just kind of dwindling. And I was putting a lot of energy into work and my relationship at that point. Um, and I didn't see it and see it. So I won't say that wasn't when the mental obsession came back. My sponsor called me one day and she was like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, cause she knew, cause I had also at that, up until that point, like I was calling her every other day at least. And it got to where I was only calling maybe once or twice a week, if that, um, and so she was like, listen, you're resting on your laurels. You need to get back into it. You're, you know, you're on thin ice. Like you're, I'm worried about you. And so I did. I got back into it, got committed meetings, um, you know, recommitted myself to the program and things were great. Uh, and that was a really good growth experience for me at that time. My husband and I, we got married pretty quick. <laughs> like we started dating in July of 2017 we got married December of 2018 and um what did your sponsor say about all that she was completely supportive you know I think like I like I said I invited God into every step of that relationship she saw you putting the work in yeah yeah and I and I called her about a lot of things you know like oh my god like he left dishes in the sink Mm. (laughs) um but, you know, it's a lot of 10-stepping and a lot of really learning how to cohabitate with another human being sober, um, giving him grace and communicating with him. Because what I realized is one of my kind of defects was expecting him to read my mind, <laughs> which I don't know if that's just an alcoholic thing or maybe just like being a woman. <laughs> Um, so I got, you know, I had to learn how to communicate my needs to him. And if I need help with something to ask. Right. Um, but anyway, so when the world shut down during the pandemic, um, you know, I was kind of, I was doing good at that point. I think I had grown a lot spiritually in my relationship. Um, I was doing okay in my work life. That was when I was working at, at the, the coffee shop and, things were okay. Like I, I was beginning to get some stability, right? Like I wasn't living paycheck to paycheck anymore. You know, I wasn't on food stamps. I think at that point I'd gotten a car. Um, so, you know, life was starting to look better, but you know, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I've heard in the program of encouraging people not to let the gifts of the program take you back out. Right. And so I was starting to get these things, right? Like I, I had the, the, the upcoming marriage, I had the job, I had the car, I had the place that we were paying for, like, externally, things were looking really good. And then the world shut down. And suddenly, it's like, okay, I don't have to go to that meeting. I like, I don't have to leave my house for my home group every week. Right. Um, 
You're, and encur- so, you're encouraged not to. Yeah. <laughs> told not yeah, to. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, great. And that was at a point where... What did, okay, so how did you guys, how did you guys navigate the pandemic, you and him? You know, he is an incredibly easy person to be with. Um, now, he has his faults, <laughs> but for the most part, and I don't, you know, I like to think this is because our relationship is, like, really firmly rooted in spiritual principles because we do each have our own separate programs. Um, but it really wasn't that difficult. You know, I was hearing about, you know, people that are holed up in their houses with their, you know, spouses or whatever, and just like hating them for it, but it was fine. I enjoyed it. I loved like not like just being around him, yeah. you know. <laughs> did y'all bin, did y'all binge watch Tiger King? Oh my King? god, we watched everything that Netflix and Hulu and all the channels have <laughs> to good, offer. How good was Tiger King, dude? How, <laughs> that feels like a fever dream today. Like, <laughs> uh, but it was great. But my spiritual life uh, died during that time because the the delusion that I fed myself was well, I'm I'm not. You know, because I actually ended up taking a, a month off of work. They offered that to us. And so I took a month off of work, and it was just me and my husband. And we're in the house with our cat, and we're binge-watching TV, and we don't have to do anything. And sometimes we'd go for a walk, and I could sleep all day and stay up all night if I wanted to. And it's like, well, I don't need, like, I don't have anything to 10-step. I don't really need to pray and meditate because I'm, not bothered by anything. You know what I mean? And I had my, I think I had one or had one sponsee at that point because the other two had relapsed. Um, and I'm thinking like, it's fine. Like she would call and check in weekly and I'm like, yeah, whatever. And so I was in a lot of delusional and I was also dealing with some chronic pain. And, um, that was, that was hard. I don't know if, you know, if anybody else has ever dealt with chronic pain, like it's really difficult. And I'd gone to, uh, I'd gone to the doctor or no, I don't think I'd gone to the doctor at that point, but I was aware of it. It's kind of a hereditary thing. My mother and her mother, my grandmother, um, were both diagnosed with fibromyalgia and other things like that. And so, you know, it's a, it's just a chronic degenerative disease that, you know, manifests in widespread pain. And so I was dealing with that, which was really, really hard. Uh, My body was hurting and I didn't know why. Right. And so the mental obsession returned in a way of, hey, like, why don't you, you know, try some CBD? (laughs) Why don't you try to smoke some CBD and see if that takes care of your pain? And it had been recommended to me explicitly recommended to me and you know and I would tell people like no I can't smoke weed like that because again I will use anything to change the way I feel and I firmly believe that that would set off the phenomenon of craving for me um I bet you're right so <laughs> it had been recommended to me from what you've told me about yourself I bet you're right yeah 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 you'd be and, down uh, in a tent down by the lake again <laughs> yeah For sure. Very quickly. Well, and I had tried, you know, at some point for very brief periods of doing the marijuana maintenance thing of like, okay, I'm just going to smoke weed. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do the hard stuff. And what I'll tell you is I would smoke a joint. And then an hour later, I've got a bottle of Jack Daniels in my hand. 
right? And then a couple hours after that, I'm going to the trap house. Like, (laughs) it's a very quick downward spiral. I can't do either. So, um, so the mental obsession returned and I really, it was, I was so delusional around it. I was just so crazy because I'm thinking like I was justifying it of like, okay, if I'm using this to treat my pain, it's okay. And it wasn't the mental obsession wasn't common misconception here. Um, it wasn't in the form of, I need a drink. There was some things that I was being dishonest about with my sponsor of like, you know, not like really practicing my spiritual program, not having contact with her, um, some secrets like shame that I was holding on to resentments that I was harboring and things like that. And so it all kind of came to a head where I was just in so much pain one day, um, like spiritual pain. And I had this realization that, oh my God, like this is my mental obsession. Um, and I called my sponsor and I got completely honest with her about everything. Um, and like full transparency, I did try CBD. Um, I was assured that the kind that I got did not have any THC in it, but nonetheless, I began like my mental obsession grabbed onto it. And the next thought was like, okay, well maybe you could do some that has like a little THC. Um, and that's what scared me. Yeah, That's what scared me. And so I called my sponsor. I got completely honest about everything. And she was like, okay, we got, you got to get back connected with God. We got to get into the work again. And we did. Um, and that was around the time that I was sponsoring. Like I began sponsoring the girl that I told you about earlier. And she got me going to those backyard meetings. Mm-hmm. I got plugged back into the fellowship. I did a, another uh, really honest and thorough four step, another fifth step, um, deeper dive into six and seven. And had I got to have like this whole new spiritual experience around it that I'm really grateful for. Um, so since then it has not returned, but I'm hyper aware of how my mental obsession can manifest. Right. Even if it's just that, that little voice that's like, you know, you don't need to go to your home group this week. Right. Or you don't need to answer the phone when that sponsee calls Right. Like it's more so the mental obsession for me today, at least it doesn't come up as like, oh, I need a drink or I'm going to go drink or this is how I can get away with drinking or drugging or whatever. It's usually in the form of cutting those corners. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Because that's my selfish ego telling me like, you can get away with this. You don't have to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And all of those things get me further away from my step one truth that I, I am an alcoholic. And what that means to me, it doesn't mean that, oh, I can never drink again or I can never do anything else again. What it means to me is that I'm going to, right? If left untreated, I am going to drink and drug again, and I'm probably going to die as a result of that. And so the way I look at it is my alcoholism is going to be treated in one of two ways. It's either going to be treated with a spiritual program of action to connect me with God that's going to be my defense or it's going to be treated with alcohol or some other substance. I have to look at it for, I think for me, it's important to look at it very black and white because if I live in that gray area, then I start cutting corners. <laughs> you know, I start cutting those corners and then I'm, you know, blowing off my home group or blowing off sponsees or not seeking God, right? Because I'll tell you, usually the first things to go are, you know, step 10 and 11. They're usually the first things to go. So 
Yeah. And then six and seven and then eight and nine. Yeah. And then you're dating, yeah. skating on thin ice at that yeah. point. Well, I feel like that my, my disease wants me dead. Unfortunately, it doesn't sound very nice to say that, but I think it's true. My disease wants me dead. So it's always hanging out in the background. In California, that where I got sober, they always talk about, oh, your disease is in the background doing push-ups, waiting for you to mess up. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I know that it, uh, unfortunately, it wants me dead. And it's not going to give up. So, Well, it's something that has to be treated, right? Just yeah. like any other disease. I think that alcoholism... You know, it's, it's not a pretty disease and it's not a disease where people feel sorry for you. Like, oh, you have cancer. I'm going to, I was here, I was somebody at, um, I don't even remember where it was, but somewhere I heard a guy say like, we need to make, you know, we need to make mental health. It was a mental health thing. Was that? He was like, we need to make mental health a casserole disease. You know, like if somebody gets diagnosed with cancer, people show up at their house with casseroles. Right. But somebody's having a really hard day struggling with, say, depression. Are you, nobody's showing up with casseroles. Right. If somebody is a struggling alcoholic and they've holed themselves up in their apartments, are you going to show up with food and try to help them? Probably not. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe if you're an alcoholic, you might. <laughs> right. It's a good 12 step opportunity. Yeah. But it's, you know. It has to be treated in one way or another. I've never heard it broken down like that. It's going to be treated one way, either the spiritual program or alcohol. Yeah. It's going to, it's going well, to demand attention. It's going to demand attention. It's going to, one right? One way or the other, it's yeah. It's going to. And, it's, and that's not to say that Alcoholics Anonymous is the only way to treat uh, it, right? It's not. It's my way. Yeah. It's, it's what's worked for, for me. Yeah, me too. And there's millions of people that it's worked for and... Uh, there are other ways to get sober, but that's the point and the purpose of this uh, podcast. And I try to keep the the lanes narrow on on what we record and what we mm-hmm. put out as far as highlighting 12-step recovery stories. Now, I'm yeah. going to tell you out of full disclosure and honesty, I get approached constantly via email from people that want to be on this show that don't fall under the purview of that. They want to mm-hmm. talk about their book. They want to talk about their treatment center. They want to yeah. talk about... They want to talk about a lot of things yeah. that are not... Um, they, want to, they want to talk about... They want to talk about a lot of things that are not <laughs> not exactly under the the lane that I that I'm trying to travel in, and so I always find that interesting to yeah. uh, to have to get those kind of emails. And I put them in a folder. I don't delete them. I put them all in a folder. <laughs> I just don't usually respond to them. Yeah. Um, some of the things that I learned early in sobriety that I hold on to even now at long term sobriety is, and I learned these in Oceanside, California, is that uh, this cat was always talking about. He's like, yeah, yeah, man, there's a, there's only two times you need to go to a meeting, when you want to and when you don't want to. <laughs> and he said that all the time. And I was like, dude, I'm not, I mean, that's all the time, dude. I know what that means. If, yeah. you, if you want me to go to a meeting when I want to and when I don't want to, that means all the time. But then I started to apply that um, to myself in early sobriety. And I was like, I really do need to go all the time, even if my brain is telling me, it's not a good idea, but then uh, they started to say things like, oh, your ego is not your amigo, and your disease <laughs> is trying to kill you, and that's why your body's telling you and your brain's telling you that you need to just stay home and do laundry tonight instead of going to a meeting. Yeah. So I just ignored myself a lot. Like a lot of times when my car would, wouldn't really want to drive to the meeting, I would just ignore it and be like, nope, we're going to go anyway. I would just force myself to go. Yeah. Let's turn our attention to either the 12 and 12 or the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you can point out – Anything at all in the literature that you'd like to read or discuss, anything in there that you'd like, or you can pick one of the 12 steps. Mm. You've got a print out there in front of you. You can pick out one of the 12 steps, and we can just jam on that for a minute. 
What I default to a lot is that our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And that is, I mean, it's huge. You know, it's hard to put into words, but I think that's something that I really, I go back to a lot. I try to practice. I try to remember that, you know, my purpose is not to look good either in AA or outside of AA. My purpose is to not receive accolades for the work that I'm doing. Uh, My purpose is not to, it's not to even be a good person, right? Uh, My purpose is not, is not any of those things. My purpose is to fit myself, to be of maximum service to God and the people around me. And what that looks like is, you know, all of the tools that I learn through the steps, right? Of that humility and like living in my step one truth, right? Um, Humility and knowing that I'm not God, right? We didn't talk a whole lot about step three, but it was huge for me in recognizing that selfishness and self-centeredness and also recognizing that I had been living my life as if I was God, you know, while also being dominated by people and things that were my God. It was this crazy thing. Um, but it's really, it's been beneficial for me to remember my purpose in that, that kind of like what you mentioned earlier is that if I'm upset with somebody else, the problem's not them, it's me. Because yes, I've, I've got a little bit like a very small amount of time in the program. Um, I've had this spiritual awakening. I've had these spiritual experiences. And, and so I have beneficial experience to share with people, but at the end of the day, I don't know what you need to go through. I don't know. And it's something that I tell my, my sponsees often, you know, they'll come to me with something and I'll say, well, this is my experience with something similar to what you're going through. This is what I feel like God is, is leading me to tell you right now. But at the end of the day, you're going to have the experience you're supposed to have. Right. That's very wise. It's true. <laughs> um, you don't waste a lot of energy and time by doing it like that. Well, and I think that really came from the fact that early on, my first few sponsees, um, I had a lot of ego invested in them. <laughs> had a lot of ego invested in them, especially the first one. Um, because, you know, she's still sober today, which is really cool. I don't sponsor her anymore, thank God, um, mm-hmm. because I had a lot of ego invested in her. And uh, I wanted her to do well so that I looked good which is bananas, but you know, but either way, like I got to have this experience out of it and be reminded that I am not responsible for anyone else's sobriety. I can't make somebody drink. I can't make them stay sober. All I can do is do my best to be the woman that God wants me to be and be of service to the woman that he's placed in my life. Right. And she's either going to hear it or she's not. There have been ample amounts of times where my sponsor has given me direction and I have not taken it immediately. And when I look back at those situations, it's typically because I needed to sit in it. I needed to sit in it to have that full realization of, of the weight of it, to have a meaningful experience on the other side. Right. <laughs> I remember so. when I was told uh, early in sobriety, I was in the same position you were, like starting to sponsor people and get my ego tied up a little bit in them and and really making sure that this one really stays sober. And my sponsor (laughs) pulled me aside and he's like, he goes, Hey Mike, you know what? If it's their time to get sober, there's nothing that you can do or say 
to screw it up. Yeah. And if it's not their time between them and their higher power for them to get sober, there's nothing that you can do or say to make it happen. Yeah. It's all preordained. That person you're sponsoring has a higher power. You are not it. And if it's their time, you'll be able to be a part of that recovery and a part of that. And that really set me free. Yeah. It gave me a lot of freedom. I want to talk about step 11 for a minute. I'm going to read that real quick. It says, okay. so, it says uh, step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I'm super curious if you and your husband have any kind of rituals or how you guys address prayer and meditation together as a couple. Is that a thing or do y'all do it separately? We do it separately. Okay. Um, but I will say early on it, you know, we prayed together before meals and sometimes, you know, we would pray together outside of that. We never really did. I think there might've been a couple times where, you know, I invited him into my morning prayer and meditation, but like his program, I'll say his program looks very different from mine. And this was an experience probably, I don't know, the first year in our marriage, the first year of our marriage, I did, you know, you, you asked me earlier if I had any like fear around being married to an alcoholic. I don't today, but early on I did. And so the way that manifested was I really wanted to be in control of his program. He had a very hands-off sponsor. He was not required to have a home group. He didn't do, you know, like weekly or anything kind of check-ins. Um, he didn't do like written nightly inventories. I didn't, you know what I mean? And it just looked very different than the structure that I like I how you use the word different. <laughs> it's very different. Um, but what I didn't acknowledge is that no matter what, like whether he was talking to his sponsor once a week or three times a week, he was still building a relationship with God. While it looked very different than mine, it doesn't mean that it didn't work, right? I mean, he's still sober today. That was an experience that I got to go through of really surrendering him and his sobriety to God. And so that's kind of why I say today I'm not worried about it because I trust that God can take far better care of him than I can. I don't think a sense. lot of good. I don't think a lot of good could come out of you worrying about it. It wouldn't, and it really created <laughs> a lot of tension in our relationship because I would. You know, passive aggressive communication <laughs> is one of my like go tos. So, yeah, and so I'd make a comment. I'd be like, "Oh, did you call your sponsor today?" And he'd be like, "What? What? You know?" And I'd be like, "You should get a commitment." And he'd be like, "Oh no, what are you talking <laughs> Taking about?" Shots. You know what I mean? Like I was really dissecting. Like, man, I was so sick around that. Uh, <laughs> but those are all good pieces of advice. They are, and and, and I'll say like <laughs> when I finally let go of it. Yeah. There was a lot of freedom in it for me, and I think there was freedom in it for him too, uh-huh. you know. And, and today his program looks different than it did in the beginning because he's on his own journey with that. He's had a couple different sponsors. He had a sponsor who uh, relapsed and almost committed suicide after 25 years, and that was a difficult time for for my husband to go through. God got him through that. There was a period of time where he didn't have a sponsor after that for about a month. And did I want to be worried? Absolutely. Because I'm like, oh my God, how could you not have a sponsor, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, But I just kept going like every morning uh, and every night in my prayers, I would just say, God, take care of him because I can't. And he did. And now he's connected uh, with a what I think is a strong sponsor and he works his program in a way that is beneficial and creates growth for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been really cool to watch him grow spiritually. 
Yeah, that like, would be cool. It's in, like he people often don't like he's very reserved, <laughs> and so he's not just the kind of guy that puts himself out there very often. Uh, but he is the kind of guy that if you call him and you need something, he will drop everything and and help. You know what I mean? And he's just what's his name? Luke. Hello, Luke. Maybe, <laughs> you think Luke is going to listen to this? He might. I don't know. Okay, Luke. Maybe I'll meet you one day. I want to meet you and I want yeah. to meet her sponsor as well. Yeah. If you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice in early recovery, what would it be? Give yourself grace. I was, uh, at one point I was going through a, I was participating in a steel on steel group with a, a few other women and are you familiar with what a steel and steel group is I've never heard of it okay so i don't i don't know exactly where it came from but it's basically like a little you know a group of three or four people could be five maybe i don't think it's ever any more than that but basically it's like this weekly kind of you could do it weekly you could do it bi-weekly or once a month i think is we were doing i think we were doing it once a month and so there's a set of questions that come from somewhere on the internet. I don't know. But it's basically questions that ask you to take a deep dive into different areas of your life. And like, how is your, how are you practicing your program? But also like, how is your selfishness manifesting? And things like that. And so then, and it's not, you know, it's not AA approved. <laughs> not anything like that. It's all good. Uh, but I was participating in this group. And so we do these like monthly check-ins. And so we would... We would have 10 minutes of meditation to start it off and then we would go around. And so like if it was my turn, I would have 10 minutes to share about because you do writing beforehand, 10 minutes to share about where I was at, what I was struggling with, what I was, you know, um, going through, how I was handling it, reacting every area from relationships to work to finances, all of it. And then after the 10 minute time would go off, I would have to stop talking even if I wasn't done. And then the other women would have an opportunity to give feedback or considerations. And anyway, that was very long winded. But the reason I share that is because the feedback that I got, and this was probably three years ago that I was doing this, um, the feedback that I got consistently every single time we met was give yourself grace. What it boiled down to for me was this obsession (laughs) or I'll say this core fear of what people think about me. I placed a lot of weight in what other people thought about me for a really long time and um, it it very well into sobriety, like I said, up until probably around year five. I, you know, because when I came in, When I started working with my sponsor, I followed that woman around like a puppy dog, like a lost little shelter dog that had been beaten and abused and was trying to like not, you know, be too loud. Like I was terrified. And I did in the first, you know, three, four years, I did everything she asked me to do, sometimes with a little hesitation and inwardly balking. But ultimately, I always did it. Then I don't know, like I just always struggled with this fear of what people think about me and I couldn't identify it for the longest time. You figure it out? I did. What is the answer? Well, ultimately what it boiled down to is I'm afraid of what people think about me because I'm seeking my validation and worth from them and not God. 
<laughs> and so, and I had heard people say like, oh, what, what you think about me is none of my business. And I'm like, how can you operate from that? <laughs> like, how can you not? It sounds barbaric. It does. <laughs> but that's what really what it boiled down to is that I needed you to validate me and tell me I'm good enough. And so it kind of exposed this part of me that That's I was, so good. it exposed this part of me that I was so agnostic in, you know, cause I think like, yeah, I can have a beautiful relationship with God. It's like, I, you know, I can, I can trust God in certain areas of my life, but that was one thing that I, I just had to take a deeper look into. And when I started to experience freedom around that, and I can still fall back into it. Absolutely. But I'm a lot more aware of it than I used to be today. And uh, yeah, now so, when it happens now, I bet you're like, oh, that's that. Yes. You're well, like, oh, and something, that. something that was helpful in writing the fear inventory is, um, and this is, this is not in the book. Um, fear inventory is cool because people do it so many different ways. Um, but something that my sponsor added when I was doing the work around this stuff is like, you know, writing down like, what is the fear? Why do you have it? And then, um, how do I show up when I'm in this fear? It was like, well, my fear is what other people think of me. Why do I have it? Because I need other people to validate me and give me worth. How do I show up when I'm in this fear? Uh, well, I'm either going to bend over backwards to make you like me, (laughs) or I'm going to run away. So you never see me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Those are the two ways that I would handle that. And I would experience it with certain people, you know, especially at work. Like, oh, I really want, I really want her to like me. I really want her to validate me. I really want her to know that like, I'm a super hardworking employee so that I, you know, get the accolades or maybe she'll shout me out in the staff meeting or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Um, I'm super committed to be here. (laughs) But I also experienced it with my sponsees too. And that's where it gets real dangerous. And so I, you know. I'm a much different sponsor today, thank God. Because <laughs> I even tell my girls, I'm like, listen, I'm about to give you some hard truth about yourself that you probably don't want to hear. But I need you to know that it's because I care more about your sobriety than what you think about me right now. Oh, wow. And, um, <laughs> and it's powerful. You know what I mean? Because it's not that I don't love them, but it's like it is more important to me today that I speak truth to someone that may help them than for them to like me like who cares which is so cool that I've been able to get to this point by realizing that and a lot of it was like the action that followed up learning that truth was really just a lot of prayer of uh, a real simple prayer that I came up with was God allow me to be fully authentic in my identity in you and no one else right because it boils down to that authenticity if I am you know, people call it people pleasing, approval seeking, whatever you want to call it. It's authenticity or inauthenticity, right? I'm not being authentic with you if I'm telling you what you want to hear. And that is not helping either one of us. No, it's just wasting everybody's time. <laughs> exactly. You know, when I, exactly. The, the older I get, the longer that I'm sober, I realize that time is my most valuable asset. Mm-hmm. And just to let the listeners know, I value your time as well. And that's why I protect this podcast so mightily with uh, the content. You know, I'm trying yeah. to not waste anybody's time because our we have a very narrow focus of what we're trying to approach here and what we're trying to accomplish here. And that is to highlight people's recovery story and their journey and their arc through sobriety via a spiritual experience related to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
That's yeah. what that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not. And so when you log in here and you check in here and you hit play here, that's what we're serving. That's yeah. that's what we have. We're not talking about the latest and greatest yoga program for this <laughs> book that was just written by this guy and he's got a nineteen dollar ninety five cent a month program. Not there's anything wrong with that. But yeah. I love that he can maybe help some people, but that's not what I'm trying to do here. So you mentioned earlier, before we get to the end of the podcast, that you wanted to talk about amends. So what do you have to share with us on that topic? Yeah, so there were a few amends that were incredibly powerful for me. I was terrified to make amends. <laughs> um, to who? Who are we talking about? Your to, dad? To anybody. <laughs> to anybody. I mean, there Come was on. like, so my first uh, You had two, to learn how to do it, right? Yeah, my first two amends were to... Uh, my former sober living roommates that I was living with again. So they were also in the program. So it was super easy with them. Okay. <laughs> um, that was kind of like my practice run. Right. Um, so those were easy. They were super understanding. They still, you know, gave me truthful feedback, which I really appreciated. But I was just, I don't know. I was like, is making events is going to be so hard. But I was also in fear of the outcome to some of them. And so I had a couple different uh, kinds of admins. And one thing I love about the book is that it gives you all of these different scenarios <laughs> and like all the different ways that it could go. But yeah, right. really the most important part is that I'm willing and that I remember that I'm not, I'm not making the amends to seek some specific outcome. Right. Um, I'm not, I'm not in control of the result of this amends, right? It could either go incredibly and um, they, you know, maybe it's somebody who harmed me and they're like, oh, I'm sorry too and everything's great. Or you might get kicked out of wherever you're meeting them or it might end in a fight or they might tell you, don't ever talk to me again. Or they might right? tell you, which I've had the experience of, that I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> that one's fun. Oh yeah, my grandfather did that to me. I I'm made like, amends uh, to him. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, oh really? <laughs> I was like, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know what else I like about the literature? Not to interrupt, but they, as far as the amends go, it also tells us who, who to not make amends to. Mm -hmm. It says... Don't go and free yourself yeah. by putting someone else at some kind of mental or physical or emotional or financial deficit just to set ourselves free. So be very careful. Exactly. And please, listener, please be careful with the nine step amends, you know, uh, where you have a sponsor and you run it past them. You know, you write, the, you make the list and then you go out and do the list, continue to make, um, this, this, be careful, please, 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 yeah. please talk to somebody who is your sponsor or your spiritual advisor. And because um, a lot of times I give these guys that I sponsor the advice to, you know, leave her alone. Let's, yeah. let's please not contact her. And what you told me you were going to tell her is a horrible idea. Yeah. That is not, <laughs> that is not an amends. Yeah. The best you can do is leave her alone, but they were fully cocked and loaded and ready to, to fire off an email or text or a phone call. They always want to do phone calls though, or mm. see them in person. I'm like, bro, you got ulterior motives yeah. and, and that's not how that's no. Yeah. So anyways, go ahead. Well, so, and that's another reason why it's incredibly important that you make sure you are, have thoroughly worked steps, you know, one through seven mm -hmm. <laughs> before doing eight and nine. Right. Yeah. Um, because if I don't know what I'm making amends for, then the amends is going to be incredibly selfish. Right. Um, but so I had a couple different kinds of amends. I, you know, I mentioned earlier that when I was out there running the streets, I um, committed crimes. <laughs> so yeah, okay. one of those was uh, theft from stores. 
And I really thought like, oh, like I can't make amends for this, you know, because like I can't just walk into, you know, Walgreens and be like, hey, I stole $50 worth of stuff from you three years ago. Here's your $50. And my sponsor is like, yeah, you absolutely can. And that's what you're going to do. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Tell me about that. So <laughs> let's go. This podcast is about to get good. Come yeah. on. So, and it's, it's, you know, it's funny because I really thought like, oh, like there's no way to make amends to like this big corporate store <laughs> that I stole from. Oh God. Well, um, did she really make you do this? Tell me what yeah, happened. Yeah. And I me. got freedom from it, which was, which was even cooler. Tell me what happened. You walked in and asked for the manager? Yeah. Come so, on, let's go. Well, I'll say, so the first one I did was, you know, uh, Home Depot and, um, I walk in and I ask to speak to the manager and I was at like the front of the store and it's funny because usually when you walk into a store and you ask to, to speak to the manager, the employees are like, oh my God, she's about to like complain. Right. But I would tell them like, no, nobody's in trouble. Like I, I, this is kind of weird and completely unrelated to your job or what you're doing, but just, I need a moment with your manager. Nobody's in trouble, but me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, um, with that specific one, they, the manager was like in the very back of the store. And so they had me talk to him on the phone from the front of the store. Oh, that's crazy. And I just explained to him, I was like, listen, you don't know me and you probably have no idea. Um, what I'm talking about, but I work a 12 step program and I came in here to make amends for stealing from your store three years ago. Um, and I was like, I believe the amount was somewhere in the range of, I think it was like $120 or something. Um, and I wanted to make that right. And he was like, uh, I don't remember his exact, his exact words, but he was pretty much along the lines of he's like, you know, I'm really impressed. Like, I'm really, I've never had anybody do this. And I'm really, he's like, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I was like, okay. And he was like, unfortunately, like, we can't take your money. And I was like, that's okay. Cause my sponsor prepared me. Right. Because this is what she had done. Um, so they can't typically take your money, you know, they can't just take it and put it in the register. But what you can do is ask if there's any charities that the corporation works with, and then you can make a donation. And so that's what I did. I made a donation to, I think it was volunteers of America for that one. Um, and I walked out of the store and I called my sponsor and I told her how it went and it was absolutely great. Um, because another thing that she made very clear to me with financial amends is that it's not my money, right? It was never my money in the beginning or in the first place. It was not my money to take or my, you know, if it was in the form of goods or whatever products, it was not mine to take. And so in, yes, paying, paying it back is not really a way to look at it because it was never mine to take in the, in the first place. And so, um, it's not mine to keep, if they don't accept it, right? <laughs> um, because I will say initially, I thought like, oh, they can't take my money, so I get to keep this little $120. <laughs> no, I don't get to keep it. It got donated to charity. Along those same lines, and this one was really cool, I also owed financial amends to Walmart. And so I walk into the Walmart that I used to frequent at the late hour, back when they used to be open 24 hours. I don't know how I never got caught, man. It was insane. Um, I did get a misdemeanor theft charge for the Home Depot stuff, but then there was other times that I went in there and didn't get caught. So that's what I had to make amends for. Um, but 
I went into Walmart and asked to speak to the manager and it was this young guy and we were talking in the little customer service area and I was like, listen, like this might kind of sound weird, but I work a 12 step program. Part of that is making amends for harms that I've caused. Um, One of those harms was coming into this store and stealing products uh, a few years ago. And I was like, you know, I would like to make amends for this and make it right. And as I'm talking, he's just standing there and he just slowly starts smiling. And I'm like, because I'm like, what are you smiling? This is weird, right? Um, And after I get done talking, you know, I told him I was like, you know, I I think the amount was in somewhere around whatever it was. And I know that you can't take my money. But if there's a charity that you guys work with, I'll donate it. And he's just like smiling and he waits for, for me to get done talking. And he's like, I've been sober in the program for three years. Are you serious? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was so cool. It was so cool. And he was like, I've actually got some amends that I've been unwilling to make. And I think God put you in here for a reason today. And so it was so cool. It was so amazing. I was like, oh my God. Like, so in that experience, like it wasn't even, it was kind of a twofold purpose, right? Like I was making the amends to yes, clean up my side of the street. But I also feel like God was using me to help that guy too. You know, and so it's just such a beautiful experience. Um, So glad that we circled back and hit that. Yeah, really powerful. And there's, you know, the amends to my family, they were equally as powerful, but I think the direct amends were good. They're kind of (laughs) awkward because my family is not like, like we didn't grow up talking openly about things. You know what I mean? Um, they knew you were a hot mess, though. They did, but they they don't know the ins and outs of the program. Um, they don't. My dad today, I think, knows a lot more because I'm I'm open and honest with him about it today. You know, and we've had conversations over the years of what was really going on with me and things like that, um, which I think is cool that we can talk openly about it. But growing up, it wasn't. It was a very much like, if you're struggling, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you be a big girl and you handle it, right? You don't have to talk about it. You don't need to cry about it. Like figure it out. Um, And I don't think they meant to be that way. (laughs) Like, I think that's, I think that's a lot of how my mom was raised and it was just kind of passed down. Yeah, that's what they were told. Um, So, which is, it's fine. But so the direct amends to them was kind of weird. Because that was before, you know, we'd gotten to where we're at now where, like, I go visit my family and we'll just have open conversations about all the crazy stuff Kelsey did and I just laugh about it. You know, my brother thinks it's so crazy. Um, I remember what we were talking about one day, but I made a joke about, like, running the streets and doing drugs and he's like, wow, you just you just talk about it, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I have no shame. <laughs> like, yeah. um, But... To kind of wrap that up, what's been powerful with my family is, I guess what you call like the living amends portion of it, is that, you know, they're all, they're in Tennessee. They're not here, unfortunately. They want me to come visit, you know, like I, we try to go twice a year in the summer and around Christmas. And every year before we go, my grandmother will call me or she'll text me and she'll say, I'm counting down the days until you're here. And this is a woman who, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago was terrified to allow me into her house, right? Um, 
And she and I have had a lot of conversations about how different my life is today and she, how grateful she is that I've experienced the things that I've experienced, you know, because she even acknowledges that maybe had I not had the struggles that I've had, I wouldn't be who I am today and I wouldn't be in a position to help the women that I do, you know, so that's a really cool one. <laughs> that's your um, dad's mom? Yeah. How old is she? She is, I don't know, in her 80s. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really, I mean, and my, my grandparents, like her and my step-grandpa were very involved in my life growing up. Um, they were pretty much, if it was like a three-day weekend or a spring break or fall break or Christmas break or anything like that, like they picked us up and we went to their house on the lake. And so I kind of grew up with them. That's cool. Uh, yeah. And so she, you know, was really... She saw, I think she saw a lot of kind of my demise, but she didn't see the, the real dirty, dark parts of it, thankfully. Yeah, a lot of us hide that. Yeah, my mom yeah. did not see uh, a lot of the, the end of my drinking career because I, you know, I was in San, I was in Southern California crashing. <laughs> I, cr- yeah. I crashed and burned in Southern California, yeah. and my, my family did not, did not see a lot of that. Anyway, I, don't, I don't, you know, they didn't need to see that. Yeah, it just it went down and it went down in flames. And I'm, I'm kind of glad they didn't see that. So what do you yeah. do for fun now that you're sober? Um, well, pre-pregnancy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I fell in love with going to the gym. I thought you were going to say pickleball. Pickleball. No, <laughs> no. no, I do like, I've played once okay. and I really enjoyed it. It was fun. Okay. So you like um, the gym? Yeah. Yeah. So my, my husband a few years ago, um, he started getting really into, I don't say really into, but like he started prioritizing his physical health. Yeah. Um, and it kind of inspired me. Um, and also this was at a period of time, like I mentioned earlier, my struggles with chronic pain and, and this is, you know, kind of not necessarily related to alcoholism, but related to my story and my journey of trying to manage that, um, you know, with, with my spiritual program, but also with the help from outside professionals as well. And so, uh, something that was recommended to me was like diet and exercise. Right. And so I was like, okay. Uh, cause if I can treat this without anything else like that would be, that would be preferable. But anyway, so I started going to the gym probably like a year ago. No, well, I guess it would be a year and a half ago because I stopped going like four months ago. Um, but that was something that I really liked to do. It was a really good release for me, something that I found really beneficial. And uh, it boosted my self-confidence as well. It was really cool. Um, but aside from that, I love I love being outside. I love being outside. I think that it's um, – because that was another way when my sponsor asked me, how do you – like when she encouraged me to find how I connect with God and then seek that, um, being out in nature was one of those things too. Like being active in, in helping people through Alcoholics Anonymous, but also immersing myself in the world that God's made. So I love being outside. I love going hiking, um, traveling when we can. Uh, we got to go to Hawaii a couple years ago, yeah. and it was just fantastic uh but even if it's just like a little you know nature trail and some 
not super urbanized area of Dallas. Like I'm cool with that too. Right. Yeah. Um, I just love being outside. I love my cats. <laughs> How many cats do you have? We have three. Whoa. Yes. What are their names? Uh, Scout, Buddy, and Roland. Okay. Shout out to Scout, Buddy, and yeah. Roland. Do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? Speaking to someone who's struggling, maybe you've been here for a while, but you're struggling and that you don't have to do it alone. That if you do feel like you're in a dark place, whether you've got two minutes, two years, 20 years sober, what I've learned is that it's not about the quantity of time. It's about the quality of my spiritual life. And so I would say like sometimes we struggle and you don't have to do that alone. This is a we program. I know that for me, my disease thrives in the dark. When I'm not talking about what's going on with me, when I'm not showing up, when I'm not being authentic, not necessarily with everybody, but at least with my sponsor and at least with the people closest to me. One of the kind of like superpower tools that I've learned in this program is to tell on myself because that insanity, it lives in the dark. This disease thrives and lives in the dark. You don't ever have to drink again if you don't want to. Would you like to give our listeners any of your contact information if they want to find out more about you? Yeah, sure. So my email is kmccain731 at gmail.com. I know that you work uh, helping people in the uh, recovery community that are looking to try to not die of alcohol (laughs) and drug addiction. So in in a general way, maybe tell us a little bit about how that fulfills you, what role that plays in your recovery and in your life. I mean, what is working in the, the recovery industry like? I am so grateful for my job, not just because I get to help people get connected to resources and and a solution that will help them just because our culture is so amazing like I work like with a lot of other recovered alcoholics you know not only do I get a marriage that's based in spiritual principles I also get co-workers that are living by spiritual principles and and clients yeah and, and, you're, you're well immersed. clients are learning you know <laughs> they got their training wheels on yeah they got their training wheels on and it's very fulfilling in my career uh there was a point a few years ago i guess it was in 2020 where i was kind of burned out working uh slinging coffee and uh, i was in a supervisor role and i was really I was just tired. I was like, I don't want to do this full, like for the rest of my life. I don't want this to be my career. And I was doing a lot of praying and talking to people. And I was thinking about going back to school. And then, you know, it all kind of just culminated in this beautiful experience where I'll, I'll keep a long story short. I was trying to force my will. I was certain that God wanted me to get this one job. <laughs> and so I was really trying to make it happen. And then um, I got denied for that job because of my background. And so I was kind of hopeless and defeated. And I was coming to terms with that. And I was like, you know what? Like, if God wants me to work at Starbucks for the next 10 years, then I, that's what I'll do. Right? So uh, then I was sharing that with somebody. And they were like, hey, there's a position at this, you know, nonprofit that I'm working at you should apply. And so I applied and I've been there ever since. And it's absolutely incredible. And I love what I get to do, but I will say that it is entirely separate 
from my personal program. Um, and that was something that I had an experience with. And I, I think that a lot of us get sober and we want to work in treatment, right? We want to become a licensed substance abuse counselor or whatever it is, you know? And I had those thoughts for sure. I just, I knew I wanted to help people. I had no idea that it was going to be alcoholics, right? I was thinking about maybe going into like geriatric social work or something like that, right? Um, So after I'd been there for, I want to say almost a year, I got to this place where, Again, my personal spiritual program was lacking because what I had done was replaced my personal recovery with what I was doing at work. Okay. And I was telling myself like, oh, I, you know, I talked about God all day. I talked about spirituality all day um, because where I work, we do use the 12 steps. And you know, I was like, oh, I talked about this all day and blah, 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 blah. So I'm I don't, <laughs> so I don't need to get with God tonight. Cause I've been talking about the dude all day. Right. right, right yeah. um, I think a lot of people that work in that industry struggle with that. It happens a lot. And, it, and it's, it's such an easy thing to fall into and then realize it a little too late. You know what I mean? Um, but thankfully I, was surrounded by some people who had had similar experiences and I got called out on it. (laughs) I got called out on it. Um, I'm so grateful for that, man. And that's, again, I'm so grateful for the the people that I get to work with because they're just absolutely incredible mentors and examples. Um, But I got called out and that was when it kind of, that realization hit me of like, oh, I should probably like look at this. And um, come to find out I had, I had some, some spiritual work to do on myself. Right. And like my entire, if you, if, if you haven't seen or noticed the trend here, my entire sobriety, and I don't know if it's been like this for you too, but my entire sobriety has been this series of like, okay, like go through something and get all of the spiritual growth. And then it kind of lulls down and then you like go through something and you get all this spiritual growth. And then it, you know what I mean? Um, they're less intense now than they used to be (laughs) for sure. (laughs) So maybe I've achieved some kind of like, you know, balance in that, but, or maybe it just doesn't surprise me anymore. Like I can start to feel it kind of when God's about to put me through something. <laughs> You're like, oh, no. You know, I can feel it. You can see the storm clouds. Yeah. You're like, uh-oh. I'm like, there's about to be some some growth in my life. <laughs> Did you have to go back and get any additional certifications or take any special classes or, or do anything to, to do all that? I mean, I no. know. No, not no, yet. Not for my job. So we're we're a nonprofit. Um so I'm think and I'm not that? like huh? Do you think you will do that? Do you think do you want to go like take classes <laughs> and get like letters after your name? You know, because they that's I a don't thing, know. right? I've thought about it. Um just depends. I I really think there, you know, I do find it attractive to maybe get uh my master's in social work at some point. Wow. Um, just because I think it would be honestly, I think the classes for it would be interesting. <laughs> They would, you're, so. you're, at a, you're at such a cool part of a woman's life, too, because you are pregnant and you're about yeah. to give birth to your first child. So things are going to change so much yeah. for you over the next few years. Yeah. And uh, one thing I'll say is I got my wife pregnant when I had 10 years sober. And we had our, uh, my child when I had 11 years sober. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty sure... Like, I just want to tell you that it changed me. Being a father changed me. Yeah. And I was pretty sure that I knew about, like, love and and what that was. And, you know, I thought I had a pretty solid handle on that. 
But then my kid was born. <laughs> and so like, it is crazy what happens yeah. to your body and to your mind and to your family and to your soul and to your wallet. Uh, that really is uh, amazing. And it is something that has been, uh, I don't know, really want to rank it or put a number on it. But I would <laughs> say it's really 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 cool being a dad and my experience has been that I've got to enter a new dimension uh of discovery about like what what is love what is what is what is it like to be a a sober dad what is it like to show up consistently for my wife and my child what is it like to be able to open my heart and allow the ice to melt off the sides of my heart and soul that I didn't even know were still there. I felt like I had been through a lot of recovery by the time that I had my kid. But in hindsight, I still had a lot of growing to do. Yeah. And there was still some some ice around my heart and, and, and my soul. And I don't know why it was there. It was maybe protecting me or maybe it was left over from my spiritual ice age that mm-hmm. I had you know, been traveling through. And then my alcohol and drug addiction sentenced me to Siberia. And I still <laughs> had some ice around my heart and soul. But that kid came in, man. He melted it, man. He melted it. And I really have enjoyed uh, watching the relationship between my son and my wife. Yeah. Um, and I've really enjoyed uh, nurturing and understanding the relationship between me and my son. And yeah. we both love him with all our heart. And we're a cute little three-pack. You know, it's the mom and the dad and the baby. So we're a cute little three-pack. Yeah, that's our dream. But I'm so excited pack. for you. I'm <laughs> so you. excited for you because I watch. I know what you're getting ready. I, I think, I assume, I, I, I know what you're getting ready to go through. And it's so fun to see my wife and my son and their relationship and how they bonded to each other. And little boys love their mommies so much. And I'm just... Can't believe how excited I am for you guys to uh, embark on this journey. The last thing I want to say before we say goodbye is I am really looking forward to trying to receive some help from the listeners to get this podcast or show available to people who are incarcerated in prisons all across the United States of America. Now, I have a decent level of knowledge of what goes on in the penitentiaries and institutions of incarceration. And I know that many inmates are supplied iPads or tablets, whatever you want to call them. And then there's approved podcasts and approved parameters of the things that they can browse and enjoy. And I know there's a couple other sober podcasts that are allowed onto those tablets. My goal for 2024 is to get this show added to the list of approved podcasts that the inmates can hear. Now, the problem is, I don't know how to do that. I don't know who to contact. So if you could please email me at mike at sobershares.com and provide me any kind of insight or information of the steps that I need to take on my end to get Sobershares added to the approved list of podcasts that inmates can listen to, that would really help me achieve one of my goals for this year to spread the good news that recovery from alcohol and drug addiction is possible. If nobody's told you they love you today, I do. I love you. I care about you. And we'll see you on the next episode of Sober Shares. 